1: Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. This is Psychoanalysis.
2: This is Psychoanalysis, a horror therapy podcast analyzing the horror genre through the lens of mental health. I'm Jen Adams.
0: And I'm Mike Snoonian.
2: And Laura is unfortunately unable to join us tonight, but never fear, we have a special guest. Stephen from the Disenfranchised Pod is going to be joining us. Stephen, welcome to the pod.
3: Thank you so much for having me. I am delighted to
0: be here. Thank you.
2: Well, thank you we for joining us.
0: Delighted to have you. It's always a treat to speak with you, Stephen. Absolutely. Yes. Yes.
2: And it is October, the greatest month of the year! Woo! And that means it's time to celebrate all things spooky, all things Reese's, and all things horror. It is also a time for us to revisit and sometimes indulge in our childhood fears. And what better way to talk about the theme of childhood fear, in quotation marks, than with a murderous clown? That's right, we are talking about it not the Murder's Clown. The book It, it can get a little confusing. But yes, we are talking about Stephen King's It. We are going to split the story into two parts and talk about childhood fear with It. And I believe our next episode, we're going to tackle the way childhood fear follows us into adulthood with It Chapter 2.
0: We'll see. The second... <laughs> That's been known to change, like what that's we do true, the next yeah. episode. So take it with a grain of salt. <laughs>
2: that, that's the plan for right now. Yeah. <laughs> All right. But before we dig in, we're going to give a brief synopsis in case you haven't seen it. It. Can you hear the capital letters when I say that? Or in case it's been a while. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> I'm going to stop doing that right now. <laughs> All right. So here is your spoiler warning.
1: It floats.
0: I just want to say... There was a tremendous marketing opportunity missed when no one ever, or in the movie for a great gag line, when no one ever said, shh, it's around the corner. <laughs> All right. Uh,
2: they are in the sewers too. You know? You would
0: have totally captured that seven year old market.
2: Yep, yep. Around the corner lemonade is, mm-hmm. fudges is made. That's, never mind. I messed up. <laughs> oh <laughs> right uh, okay so it's raining cats and dogs in the fall of 1988 and five-year-old georgie is getting ready to play outside with his paper boat it gets away from him and sails into a sewer grate it's as wholesome location as any for georgie to meet a charming clown named pennywise as he almost immediately unhinges his jaw rips georgie's arm off and sucks him into the sewer we realize he's actually not all that charming
0: Oh, and thank God Pennywise got rid of Georgie then. Georgie. Oh. oh, you meant Pennywise <laughs> isn't charming. No, 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 no. I thought you meant Georgie, no, that little bastard. No, the charming
2: clown. He's who, murdering. Whoever,
0: whoever would have
3: suspected that? You know, know. A, a clown living in a sewer might not be so charming as he seems.
2: I know. Speaking of Cape Fear, nobody who speaks German could be bad. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. All right. Uh, The following summer, we meet the members of the soon-to-be Losers Club. Mike works at a slaughterhouse. He lost his parents years ago in a racially motivated arson. Richie, Stan, Bill, and Eddie are four friends who are dorky and delightful. Eddie is a hypochondriac with an overbearing mother. Stan is the son of a strict rabbi. Richie is a real Weisenheimer, and Bill is Georgie's older brother, still haunted by his little bro's disappearance. Bev is an outcast with a disgusting, abusive father, mm-hmm. and there's a rumor going around town, even amongst the adults, that she is "quote unquote" loose. Ben is the new kid on bleh, Ben is the new kid in town slash on the block, picked on yes. for his weight. You
0: might say he's the new kid on the block, and he's yep. got the right stuff. He does and have he, the right stuff. He is hanging tough.
2: Uh huh, and he <laughs> goes step by step down the stairs yeah i <laughs> got with, one
0: <laughs> with jokes like that girl i'll be loving you
2: forever. oh i know please don't go please don't go girls Gal, i really i loved the new kids i had gigantic new kids buttons man i
3: didn't hate them Oh i man. i had no context for them
2: well donnie's the cutest is all you need to know anyways
3: marky mark's brother
2: yeah, Marky, Mar- I mean, yeah, yeah.
3: He, I mean, he, sh- he shot himself in the head with in his underwear in uh, The Sixth Sense. He did. So.
2: I know. I, I don't want to vouch for a, either of them as adults, but they were some dreamy um, early 20-year-olds. And now
3: they all sell cheeseburgers, so.
2: That's right. So, you know, what more could you want Nothing, in man? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing. Maybe for them to get vaccinated. Uh,
0: no. Anyways.
2: All right, let's see. Where was I? Okay, it's the last day of school, and everyone is ready for summer fun except Bill, who's still trying to find Georgie, and Mike, who has to work. Putting a damper on things are the recent rash of missing kids, as well as local bully Henry Bowers, who's beginning to drift into psychotic territory. There's also a clown, or a headless child, or a leper, or a creepy flute lady. One by one, the kids are menaced by the manifestation of their deepest fears. As they maneuver around threat after threat, the kids bond and realize they are stronger together. (laughs) They learn that Derry is a fucked up town full of creepy and at best negligent adults and that Mm -hmm. the cycle of tragedy always involving child deaths repeats itself every 27 years. Together they discover Pennywise's lair, a scary house on the end of Neibolt Street where where Richie is terrorized by the specter of his own death and Eddie breaks his arm. Bev the hero saves the day by stabbing Pennywise with a fire poker and driving him back into hiding down the well at the center of the house scared. They begin to fight with each other and go their separate ways for a little while. We get a peek behind the Henry Bowers curtain by learning that his dad is emotionally and probably physically abusive. It's pretty horrifying. Mm -hmm. Pennywise manipulates Bowers. He sees a red balloon, the gift of a murder weapon and hears the people on TV telling him to kill his dad. And so he does.
3: Because we must always do what the voices on TV tell us. Exactly, mm-hmm. yeah. That's what I learned from this movie. So. I,
2: that's what I learned from this movie, too, yeah. And from The Shining, I think. Um, Bev's dad tries to assault her, and she knocks him the fuck out with a toilet lid. Go, Bev! Yes. Hell I yes. Bev. Mm-hmm. But then he she. dead? I don't know, and I don't know if it's ever... I don't think so. There's a lot of
0: blood on the floor. She yeah. goes to live with her aunt at the end of the movie, so that's why I thought, like... Well,
2: but in the second one, she doesn't know if she doesn't know that he's dead when she shows up.
0: Yeah, you're right. So I think it's never
2: totally confirmed, but I don't think he's actually dead. But he might as well be because fuck him, he's dead to me.
0: Exactly. Uh, What a (laughs) a fucking creep.
2: Oh, dude, yeah, he's disgusting. Um,
0: not dad goals. No, not (laughs)
3: antithesis of dad goals. Uh, As far from dad goals as you can possibly be.
2: But you know who is Goals is Bev, because she's amazing and I love her. But then Bev is immediately abducted by Pennywise and turned into a damsel in distress.
3: You hate to see it.
2: Yep. (laughs) Bill assembles the Avengers and they set out to save Bev. Once in the sewers, they are attacked by Henry Bowers, who straight up tries to kill Mike and the flute lady who bites Stan's face. Bev wakes up in the heart of Pennywise's lair, but she's not afraid of him, having already confronted her horrible, disgusting father, so he puts her in the Deadlights, a floating limbo where she can only be saved by Ben's non-consensual kiss of true love. (laughs) (laughs) But hey, (laughs) at least they didn't film the child or (laughs) GC.
0: Disappointing. Uh,
2: Is it though? Is it though? Still still cannot believe that. Didn't get past an editor. Right.
0: Bev by is that, bro- yeah, we'll talk about it. like, <laughs> At that point. It's like, eh, you know, you sell that many books, you can pretty much. I, I put guess it
2: so. Apparently, yeah. Bev is brought back to life, but now they need to fill, kill this fucking clown, which they do by facing their fears and standing up for each other. They refuse to be afraid of Pennywise and drive him back into the well for now.
3: So is Pennywise and Freddy Krueger pretty much have the exact same weakness is mm-hmm. is what I learned. Yeah.
2: From that is refusing yeah taking back all the power i gave to you yes bill finds georgie's raincoat in the lair and begins to finally grieve and let go a few days later bev says that while she was in the deadlights she saw a vision of them all as adults hmm i smell a sequel Mm. or pardon me a squeak (laughs) oh no we haven't said squeak in a while so everybody mark your bingo cards They all swear to come back to Derry if it returns. They link hands as the summer and their childhood comes to an end. They all go home until just Bev and Bill are left. She's moving to Portland, away from her terrible father. But before she leaves, they share a sweet goodbye kiss.
1: Chapter one.
2: Yay. That's
0: Yay and, it, and that's
1: the one. movie.
2: Huzzah.
3: Yay. Great podcast, all right. everybody. Yay. Yay. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Um, All right, so let's do a feelings check. And this is where we share our first experience with the film and how it makes us feel when we watch it. And Mike, would you care to kick us
0: off? Yeah, I know we've talked about this movie before when we did more like a general overview of it. It's a comfort horror movie. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I apologize to listeners if I'm like kind of repeating myself here, but like this or Salem's Lot are probably my favorite King books. Like Mm -hmm. I... Even though it's, like, over 1,100 pages, it's one that I revisit a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I have the audiobook, like, just saved to my phone so I can always so throw good. it on whenever. Steven Weber. Stephen Steven Weber reading it. Okay. Um, I read it at far too young an age. Like, I think I read it the summer it came out or the summer after it came out. Like And my parents were very conservative in terms of, like, you know, Catholic Church and... They never gave me the talk about the birds and the bees. Like, I Mm -hmm. still haven't. Like, at some point, my mom will probably sit me down and like, well, now that you're of age, we should probably talk a little (laughs) bit about where babies come from. (laughs) I think I've relayed the story before. My mom, when I was in college, confronted my college girlfriend when she found condoms in my room. So that relationship, you're not going to believe, <laughs> didn't last much longer. Shocking! That was fucking horrifying. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, like a lot of the sex things, like went way over my head. Like I had mm. no idea what was going on in any of that. Um, I love this story. I and I just like rewatched Stand by Me recently. Like after listening to like the Losers Club episode on it from mm-hmm. way back, and I'm like, oh, this is totally the stand by me is a totally a trial run for like yep. writing the losers club. It's like mm. he gets like King at this point. Cause he's not so far removed from childhood. He gets it. And it's not so nostalgic that he doesn't recognize all the warts that go on. And as somebody that works with kids of this age every single day, what I really love about this book is how it captures all of the big feelings, all of the big emotions, not just the triumphs of it, but also like the real heartbreak that comes from it, the real sort of like feeling of like both loneliness, but also feeling like there's a point where all the kids like say, or have an internal monologue of like why they think Henry Bowers hates them the most. Mm -hmm. And that's a real thing. You always feel like I am the most hated. Everybody is looking at me. And King really captures that uh, with his characters here. I think it's like, near perfect in his writing and i think Mm -hmm. this this movie does an excellent job of encapsulating each of the kids it's great casting um Mm -hmm. it's interesting because steven you were on with us when we did a script reading of carrie Fukunaga's original Mm -hmm. script for it chapter one yeah which is very different it, in that. In a lot of Stan, ways, yeah. It, yeah, Stan Iris is played by a goldfish mm-hmm. uh, in that script. Yes, there is no Stan. Mm-mm. He is a goldfish. Correct. Oh. Um Yeah, it is a much, much different script. It's That's very like surreal that. in a lot of places. It would have been amazing to see. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a much more straightforward adaptation. I like that they update it for the uh, 80s and then into the modern times, or was it the early '90s or the '80s? I'm trying to remember. It's, it's I think it's
2: '89.
0: '89, so '89 yeah. yeah. of that, right? Yeah, and then the um, book is
2: '58, I believe. Yeah, yeah, that sounds right. So,
0: and this really, I mean, it's the highest grossing horror movie of all time. Still, Still. Mm. it yeah. was a real cultural moment. Um, I remember going to see this like three times in a week uh like the preview another night with my wife and then another night with like two of my best friends at a Mm drive-in and we went to the local theater like the one that's literally a three minute drive from us that we never go to and it was the only time it was ever packed that Mm -hmm. in the when when uh force awakens came out the Mm -hmm. only time it's ever been packed it was all teenagers and my wife and I are like, oh, this is going to suck. Like, kids are going <laughs> to talk over it, cell phones. Mm-hmm. And it was, like, pure chaos in the theater before the lights went down. And then when the lights went down, like, it was one of the best movie-going experiences I've ever had because mm-hmm. the kids, like, screamed and laughed in all of the right places. And it was like, oh, this is this is amazing. Mm-hmm. So really fun movie. Uh, Looking forward to kind of talking about it from the perspective of, like, the scary stuff for kids. And, you know, talk about, as we distance ourselves from it, some of the, you know, legit criticisms that there are to be had of it as well.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Stephen, what about you?
0: Um, I have... So, and this is
3: something I've discussed at length on Disenfranchise. I've even discussed it on Pod and the Pendulum a time or two. Uh, I don't really have a lot of history with horror. Like, I didn't grow up with horror like a lot of people did. I'm, I'm mm. very new to horror fandom and very new to horror movies. Uh, probably, I would say, within the last seven years or so, I've, I've become very into horror. And so I've been slowly catching up on everything that I've missed. But I have I have attempted at various points in my life to read a Stephen King book, and I have... Uh, to date, uh, been completely unsuccessful.
1: Oh, (laughs) Um,
3: But um, as I did start to get into horror movies, I started to get a little, um, I I guess a little, you know, you get a little bolder and a little. And so this was the after hearing recommendations from friends and after listening to a couple of film podcasts that had reviewed it, I was like, I think I want to go see it in theaters. And so this was the first horror movie I ever saw in a movie theater. Oh, wow. As, you know, as, as a grown ass man sitting, (laughs) sitting in this, in this theater and it's my first exposure to a, to a horror movie in a theater, I'm there with my now ex and uh, one of her work friends and I'm sitting in between them, which is weird. But Mm. whenever I could feel a jump scare coming on, I'd find my eyes just kind of gravitating, gravitating toward the corners of Mm. the theater. Just kind of like, Oh, Wow. Um, the only one that I didn't catch that I didn't like track was the one where Pennywise just comes popping out of the uh, projector in the garage oh, yeah. and I about shit my pants. Um,
2: <laughs> so how much did you know about the story before you saw this movie? I knew
3: there was a child orgy. Um
0: everybody knows that
3: i mean i, it's, I, I think it's i like read a it clown
2: in, and a child orgy right
3: yeah there's a there's a, a clown that was originally tim curry but now isn't because he's he's not able to do the role anymore and mm-hmm. then I, I think i'd read in a cracked article that there was a child orgy um and that was pretty much it that was pretty much all i knew um mm-hmm. like i didn't know like when they said chapter two that was when i like remembered oh yeah they're adults right there's, there's something mm-hmm. about them mm-hmm. as adults Like Mm -hmm. I didn't, I didn't track that at all. Like that was Mm -hmm. just not something that I was considering until the chapter one. And I'm like, Oh, okay. Um, So, but I had known that at some point as well, uh, Mm -hmm. I think. So, but yeah, I I didn't know much at all going in. So a lot of it was very new to me. Like I had no context. I had no frame of reference. I had seen very little King and what uh, King adaptations and what King adaptations I had seen were mostly like, Shawshank Redemption and The mm, Green Mile, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. the, the the more straightforward non-horror-y ones. And then as time went on, I did start to watch other ones, um, you know, Your Beloved, The Shining and, and Christine and, and so many <laughs> yeah. others. Um, but yeah, so I, I've, I've gotten more kind of uh, King knowledge, but still have not read one of his books. Actually, we did a, a King episode on Disenfranchise earlier this year on The Dark Tower, um, oh, mm. had had my my good friend Mandy and her sister on to talk about that movie and, and kind of King in general. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, okay. Mandy's probably listening. Hi, Mandy, if you're listening.
2: Hi, Mandy. <laughs>
3: um, but I I, uh, I I watched this movie with her because it chapter two is like her favorite movie of all time.
2: Oh, or, really? Or one
3: of I would say probably number three for her, but uh-huh. like she loves it. So mm-hmm. I was like, you want to watch it? And she's like, hell yeah, I want to watch it. Why wouldn't I want to watch it?
2: <laughs> right, right.
3: Um, But I mean, so like. I don't know. I've I've gotten more kind of King knowledge and but I've still never actually engaged with the man's actual writing. So mm-hmm. it's, it's it's on my to do list. One of these days I'm going to actually get it done. But yeah.
2: Well, if you ever need someone to suggest a, a book to start with, that's one of my hobbies is trying to find the perfect King book for somebody to start with. So,
3: I've had a recommendation, you know. but I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts as well
2: ah well maybe at the end of the episode I'll okay tell you, based Let's on go. what we talk about and then i want to hear what your recommendation is too but okay but not till after i've given mine anyway sorry that's a whole sidebar and that's so interesting i feel like and i guess maybe to start my feelings check on this like i am so immersed in stephen king just you know being part of the losers club and like just i i love stephen king like these quotes are the, these are Stephen King quotes on okay. the wall behind me like he's my I've said it many times he's my favorite person I've never met um And so it is hard for me to like know to really put myself in the place of someone who is not familiar with Stephen King's stories or kind of like his world so I'm really excited to talk kind of about how some of the things hit you as you were watching it you know mm-hmm. um, because like I feel like I've always, had this story with me you know I don't actually remember the first time I read the book but I do remember this might be my first image or awareness of Stephen King because I remember my dad had the book cover or the book on the shelf with like the sewer grate and the little like they look like dinosaur claws poking out and I was like what is that and then it with like that looks like it's all like bloody and Mm. I don't know. So like the imagery of this story has been with me since like before I could probably form conscious memories, you know? Um, I don't, I think I actually read the story a little bit later and it is in my top 10 of favorite Stephen King books, but it is not in my top five, but that is out of like 70 books. So, and I still love it. I've read it slash listened to it probably five or six times at this point. It's, it has its flaws, but I think it's it's so good. it makes me cry every time it's just such this a beautiful like examination of friendship. You know the last pages are just gorgeous writing and Bev is one of my all time favorite characters in all of literature and all of movies, and I remember I went to see this, and I had been following like the the production story you know but this was before i was podcasting and before i was writing like pretty shortly before but so i remember going to see this with friends who had no idea what the story was going to be and i went to see it not thinking i would have to form an opinion on it so and i wasn't going to do an episode i wasn't going to like write anything about it so i just sat and enjoyed it and i have a couple of big issues with it but other other than those like I loved it. I thought they really captured the heart of the story, you know, which is the relationship between the friends. And I think Bill Skarsgård is incredible as so Pennywise. Good. So like, good. I love him in general, especially after seeing Barbarian. Man, that movie is awesome.
3: So good. Oh, I love, Barbarian. I love Barbarian. Barbarian's awesome. <laughs> so
2: good. Um, but... Yeah, he's just great in this role. And, you know, I wrote a couple of things about it recently that made me appreciate his performance more. Like a lot of that is not CGI. It's just they put makeup on his face and he just bent it all weird, you know, which I think is just so cool. So, yeah, that's my my feelings check. I, I think Mike's story in this bugs me. Ben's story in this this adaptation bugs me. And the damsel in distress thing bugs me. We talked about that in our comfort horror episode, so I'm not going to harp on it too much. But, but of those three things, I think that's what keeps it from being a perfect movie for me. But other than that, it's probably about an eight and eight and a half, nine out of ten for me. I think yeah. I really love it. The score is incredible too. Um, all right. Well, now that we've all shared our feelings and that I've done some gushing, um, let's talk about our mental health issue. And I'm really excited to dive into this because it's another one that's not really a diagnosis, um, but it is definitely something I think we can all relate to. So, Mike, what is it that we're talking about with this yeah. topic?
0: So, to be honest, Jen, this I might actually record this again separately because I don't have a lot <laughs> okay. on it. But So I might just like use this as a placeholder and then go back and re-record it. So, okay. really, the next couple episodes, we're going to talk about what scared us as kids. And we're going to talk about how sometimes those fears can carry over uh, into when we are adults in the next episode. And I don't mean it in a way of like, oh, when I was a child, like this really traumatic event happened to me. And then, you know, I became somebody that still suffers from like PTSD. I'm talking more about like when I was a kid, uh, I was really afraid of spiders and then I still like can't go if a spider web gets in my hair, I still freak out as an adult, which someone might argue is like, well, that's... that's a
2: reasonable <laughs> response.
0: Right, you know. Um, <laughs> right. Or, I guess it depends on know, how you feel about spiders, but yeah. Like, like, that's yeah. true,
2: yeah. Or they're how, they're like, trying to kill us all.
0: <laughs> like my wife and I were talking like, before and she was like flying for her it was like a really big one as a kid she was terrified of, yeah. of flying and I'm like vampires so that kind of <laughs> lets you know and I was like right. vampires and sometimes my dad like so that kind of lets you know a little bit about Same. childhood yeah. you know the dark uh,
2: and my dad those were
0: mine yes. <laughs> um, I used to because I would read and my daughter's getting into folklore and I wish I still for whatever reason, like the It Public Library, the children's section had an amazing occult selection, like history of witchcraft, history of vampires, history of ghosts, like mm-hmm. great. And I would just check all of them out on a rotating basis. So like I could dive deep and I probably don't remember enough of it now. Like my brain is just sludge. Um mm-hmm but like folk, the folklore behind vampirism. Um, so, and then I would read about Vlad the Impaler. Like at one mm-hmm. point, you know, you have that challenge. Like if you could talk about any one subject for 30 minutes with no notes, no prep, what would it be? 12 year old me would be like, let me tell you about Vlad Tepish or Vlad the Impaler, the ruler mm-hmm. of Wachala uh, and, you know, his fight against the Ottoman Empire and how he was, I could do all and, and all of that. I, I for
3: one, would love to hear 12-year-old Mike just exposit everything he knows about Vlad the Impaler. That just sounds
0: like a hoot. Oh, Oh,
2: I'd listen to it, too.
0: It was a good time. It was a good time. (laughs) Um, But I would also terrify myself, and I have a specific childhood memory of being so scared one night and having to go to the bathroom that I grabbed the... Virgin Mary statue that I had in my room and held it in front of me like a crucifix and like made the seven foot walk to the bathroom to pee with because I was so scared that like a vampire was going to come out and get me. I've been there. But. Did it I, work? I, I am I mean, still you here. didn't get
2: got. So yeah. I can <laughs> go
0: out in daylight. I am aging. Um, so you're, sadly, you're
2: possibly a Twilight vampire, but oh, you know. God.
0: Do they age? <laughs>
2: No, they don't. And can, uh, Sorry, I didn't mean to derail.
0: <laughs> you know, you're a two hundred and fifty year old vampire that can pretty much do anything, and you're like, I'm gonna go to high school.
2: What the totally. fuck? Totally. What's I up know. with that?
0: Right. That's grooming mm-hmm. right there. Kids. That's
2: why you become a vampire so you don't have to go to high yeah, school. Yeah, correct.
0: You want to know what a groomer looks like? It looks like Edward Cullen.
2: I mean, I think I feel like there's been a lot of writing on that.
0: Yeah. Save there the should be Angel more. and Buffy and Spike and Buffy. Correct. It's like you're a 200-year-old vampire that's traveled the world. You've seen the Boxer Rebellion and you're like I need me a high school cheerleader. What could you possibly have in
3: common with a high school cheerleader? Good Lord. Come on. Be better. (laughs) Anyway, sorry about that.
2: I was just making an inappropriate gesture.
3: So um, inappropriate, but well timed, I will say. (laughs)
2: Thank you. Listeners, just let it be to your imagination.
0: Yeah. It was good, though. So we'll talk a little bit about in the next couple episodes, like, how do these fears develop and what, like, are kind of unique about the fears that adolescents face? Because at this age, like, you're in that in between, like, you're no longer a child, you're not quite a teenager, like, you're a swear in the root of adolescence Mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. Um, So basically, there are two things that scare us when we're infants, um newt gingrich uh two things (laughs) that scare us they are number one like the loss of support Mm -hmm. so when we're taught and this is where attachment theory comes from from john bobley famous british psychologist who came up with this theory after he was like shipped off to boarding school by his parents as a teenager he was like hey mom and dad don't want me around and (laughs) this is why it's hard for me to form relationships but no as a Baby, you, you're so independent, you're so dependent on your caregivers for food, for shelter, for clothing, for nurturing, for ba- to get changed. And you learn very quickly as a baby if you cry, hopefully the people that love you will come and cuddle you and support you and give you what you need. Unfortunately, a lot of babies learn the lesson that when you cry, Nobody comes and helps you, that maybe you get yelled at, maybe nobody just comes, maybe your needs aren't met. And it's from that starting point, like, that's where fear starts to develop. The other thing that scares babies are very loud noises, like they're startle reflexes for shit when you're super, super young. So, you know, if you play coochie, coochie, coo too loud and, like, scream peekaboo like an insane person (laughs) you will traumatize a baby Um, and I would say you know listeners try it yeah just
2: what could go wrong you know
0: traumatize that child Mike's wanting to
2: be in therapy in the therapy business for years to come
0: (laughs) and again when my daughter was super young and just learning to talk I tried to teach her you're not my mom whenever she went to like Target with my wife. Like I need you to yell, you're not my mom. Oh super my loud. Oh my gosh. Never. Yeah.
2: And you're still married somehow. <laughs>
0: I'm the fun parent. Um, <laughs> so um, fears are conditioned. So what can, like, fears are also conditioned. Like there's been a lot of research around like uh, operant conditioning and how These fears come out of us uh, and they're kind of basically combined with our inborn inborn fears. So if you hand like a small child, like a stuffed bunny, for example, and then startle it so that it cries, it will very quickly learn to become afraid of like furry creatures because it's going to make that association of like oh this furry creature is bad every time i see it something Mm -hmm. startles me and you don't have that conscious level of like kids aren't thinking on that depth but their lizard part of their brain just is like furry animal it's bad i'm gonna be frightened and therefore i will cry or do whatever i can to get away from the situation Mm -hmm. um And a lot of this comes, like, from the uh, research of, like, uh, not only Pavlov, but also, like, an American psychologist, George Lawton. Um, And he did his research specifically around, like, handing children stuffed bunnies and then scaring them and seeing how quickly they would become frightened. So that's amazing. Um, (laughs) How do we help kids get over our fears like john watson another psychologist was like look the worst thing you can do with children were there when they're afraid is ridicule them like that's the most unsafe mm. way to help someone treat their fears mm-hmm. because then what's going to have that if you make fun of a kid or ridicule them or tell them that they're stupid or wrong for being afraid of something that's not going to help them get over the fear the only thing that's going to do is it's going to make them internalize that fear and then they're going to not reach out for help when they should ask for help. They're going to learn, I have to handle this thing on my own, even though I'm not equipped to handle it. The mm. best way to support kids when they're afraid is you know, let them know that we all get afraid of things sometimes um, and to like be there to love them, support them, listen to them. And reassure them. That's the number one thing you can do is, like, reassure kids. Mm -hmm. uh, And remind them, yes, sometimes there are things that we should be afraid of.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Kim? Like big, Mm -hmm. scary, stuffed animal bunnies. Um, (laughs) Also clowns. Clowns. Clowns are scary. Yeah,
2: Yeah, and it's interesting that we're talking about this in the context of Stephen King because I think Stephen King does such a good job of exploring childhood fear, Mm -hmm. you know? So, yeah. Sorry.
0: Absolutely. No, I think that's one of his real strengths. And you see him struggle, like, in his later books as he's gotten older, you see him struggle with current lingo of kids.
1: Mm. Mm-hmm.
0: you know. I, and I think, like, the Losers Club has done like, a really good job of, like, talking about how sometimes, like, King's child protagonists, say, from, like, 2000 on... Or sometimes, like, all right, no kid talks this way. But what right. he's never lost touch of is like, fear is fear. And I think yeah. a lot of the fears that we fear when we're young, they don't, new things are added with each generation. But I think some of the core things remain the same.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I remember there's a passage in Salem's Lot, one of my favorites, where Mark Petrie, I think, is going to, he's in his bedroom, he's about to go to sleep, and he's just kind of talking or writing about the difference between childhood fear and adult fear. Mm -hmm. Just like the looming dread of like financial stability or something that is what adults fear. And that's way oversimplified, but that I think childhood fear lots of times is more like monster centric Mm -hmm. or it takes the shape of some kind of thing that we can easily visualize or latch on to, you know?
0: Yeah. One of the really kind of beautiful things about King's writing of childhood fears, and you brought up Mark Petrie and it applies to the losers club as well. I just, as you mentioned that it hit me when the kids in King books have these encounters with these really scary beings how quickly they're able to bounce back mm-hmm.
1: um
0: yeah because to a child like monsters are like an everyday part of their world like you when i remember as a kid like i believed in werewolves i believed in vampires i mm-hmm. believed in ghosts like they were just like yeah i've never seen one but they were every bit as real to me as like my teachers and friends i just hadn't encountered one right so When what's great about King's work is when they encounter one of these beings and then survive it, they're able to kind of like put that in a compartment and then move on. It's like they're not so traumatized by it that they can no longer function. Mm -hmm. Whereas like I think if an adult, like I think you even see it in like the the older adults that somehow encounter these monsters, how they're much more permanently scarred by them because Mm -hmm. it no longer fits into that worldview of like what it means to be adult and what we have been trained to believe the world should look like and anything that is fantastical or magical doesn't belong there Mm -hmm. so yeah it affects us even deeper
2: Well, I remember I think in maybe one of our earliest episodes, we talked about scary stories to tell in the dark, which was another book series that I loved as a kid. I just ate that shit up. And I remember one of the defenses of that because, you know, parents were saying it's too scary for kids. I've heard that from parents when I read the read them to my students. And, you know, maybe there's some validity there. But the defense of that was that it helped Kids put a face to a fear they can't understand yet. Mm. And I think that for me, like when I think about the monsters and the way Pennywise takes shape. Sorry, we're shifting into book now, so I don't want to jump the gun. But I feel like with childhood fear, it's like – if I can find a visual or if I can find something that I can define the fear with, even if that's not exactly what it is, it channel. I can channel that fear. Like mm-hmm. I slept with my lights on throughout high school, mostly because I was reading Stephen King all the time. Yeah. But my biggest fear was church jumping on to my bed, you know, and. I'm not really afraid of church. Like, church is probably not going to kill me. He might scratch mm-hmm. me. But that was what my fear of, like, just uncertainty or whatever was under my bed that I didn't know. That's what I latched onto, And that's, like, the form it took, yeah. you know?
0: Yeah. And it's funny, like, what you just said there about, like, parents saying, oh, this is too scary for children, this might be a little old man yelling at a cloud a little <laughs> bit, but I feel like there's been such a shift in the past couple generations with parents wanting to protect their children from anything bad that can mm-hmm. possibly happen. And of course, I don't mean like super unsafe situations, but like children's entertainment has been completely sanitized at this point to such a degree that it's it's cloying. Mm-hmm. Um Whereas, like, when we were growing up, like, you could see, you know, like, shit like the Goonies got dark. Mm. Dude, times. that movie like,
2: scared the shit out of right. me when I was
0: little. We could handle, like, E.T. got dark. Mm-hmm. Like, E.T., there are parts of that, like, when they have, like, all the government agents and, like, mm-hmm. E.T. is, like, chalk white at one point. Like, it's, like, it's scary. Yeah, um, Princess like, Bride
2: also fucked me up.
0: Yeah, that's, you know, another one. It's, it's. yeah. And roads parents on the side, shrieking eels. There's all sorts of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: exactly. I mean, there's also Dreamy Carrie always, but yeah, know. he I
0: covers mean, he some a multitude mon- of sins. I think. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, like the Monster Squad. You have Dracula calling a little girl like a bitch and grabbing her by the throat. You're right. Um, <laughs> so, oh, Dracula! But now, like, you couldn't make that. Now, like, you yeah. would be parents would be horrified. Um, <laughs> parents are like a very specific way some parents have a very specific way they see the world and they want to mold their children into that exact shape it's not about letting a kid be their own person and develop on their own and kind of come up with their own world worldview which you guide and you nurture the best you can and support it's more about here's how i believe what i think i think you need to think like this and i will protect you mm-hmm. in order to make that happen um i mean i have to teach a class about bullying to to kids and we talk about not hitting people and how to handle it and i'll be honest with kids i'm like the only way to really stop a bully is to punch them in the mouth as hard as you possibly can like that is what typically stops a bully but we can't do that in school because then you'll get in trouble so do it 250 feet away after 3:30 in the afternoon <laughs> um, so
2: speaking of salem's lot <laughs> right
0: yeah. But how does Mark stop the bully in that book? He like just uses Best his own him. size and strength against him. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, moving on a little bit. Well, hold on, because I fears. I think you called you called
3: out my parents like pretty hardcore there, Mike. So I, I... good. We'll get them on the horn. Let's see. <laughs> well, I mean, just you know, I grew up. It, probably similar to you did in a very conservative, very religious mm-hmm. background. So, you know, I, my mother was extremely protective of everything that I used to watch mm-hmm. to the extent that, you know, when I saw independence day at age 13, I could not sleep at night mm. because of, you know, the scene where Brent Spiner gets choked out by an alien and shoved up against a window. Yep. Like mm-hmm. that fucked me up as a kid, you know? So, I, and, and all of that stems from a, the fact that anything, horror related was automatically satanic or, or, you know, mm. it was granting the devil a foothold mm. or the fact that my, my grandfather used to terrify my father when he was a, a small child with a, a mask of the creature from the black lagoon. And so my dad grew up hating horror. And so wow. we never watched it. I had no exposure to it, which is <sighs> so, I mean, my own childhood fears are the reason I didn't engage with horror
0: till I was an adult, honestly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, and, in- we loved horror growing up, but it was like universal horror and hammer horror Mm -hmm. and Abbott and Costello meet the wolf man. Um, I would, you know, like most kids in the eighties rent videotapes or like watch, we would take like, we had the cable box where you could take a sliver of an aluminum can and slide it under the little kind of like slot in the bottom of it. And you would get all of the stations unscrambled you know, like old school tricks to get free cable. Um, God, I've just aged myself. <laughs> um, but we would like watch it on our own and then have nobody there to kind of explain to us like, well, here's why mm-hmm. it's okay. Right. So a little bit about adolescent fears. I know I'm going a little bit long here, so I apologize. And this is like what happens when I go 90% off the top of my head. <laughs> um Once you move into adolescence, like fears become a lot more internal. There's a lot more of a social component to those fears. So it's not just like, oh, there's big, scary monsters or even just like bullies that are going to hurt me. But this is when, like, there's more of a psychological component that starts to creep into your fears, which makes sense because when you hit adolescence, like you start to become a lot more choosy about who you spend your time with. Like, it's Mm -hmm. the time, the best example I can give, it's like when. Birthday parties go from like, okay, you have to invite every kid in your class to come to this so nobody is excluded to like, who are the four or five kids you wanna spend the most time with and we'll do something smaller but cooler. Um, You get, you start to like separate by like your clicks. You know, this is like sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade. It's when you start to see these little cliques form um, and you start to see kids kind of come together by what interests them. Like you have kids that are artsy, you have kids that love music, you have kids that love video games and they clump together. What are their abilities? You know, what are the things they are really good at? Like the athletic kids tend to get together and hang out with other more athletic kids. It's also why, you know, where bullying becomes much more prevalent. Mm. Kids start to make the associations, not just like with physical size and verbal size, but it's also where relational bullying becomes a thing. And kids recognize, oh, this person might have less money. This person is much more socially awkward. This person has less friends or doesn't dress as nice. And kids are so good at honing in on perceived flaws of other children And can do an amazing job of like cutting right to the core of like what is gonna hurt them the most. Mm -hmm. And I've said to like many, and I, kids I work with at the school, I'm like, look. I've seen plenty of kids catch a beating from another kid, and they get over it. But I will tell you that I work with people in their 30s, their 40s, their 50s that come see me every week. And a lot of what they talk about is what has been said to them when they're 10, 11, 12, 13 years old. Like You don't realize the power of what you can say, the lasting impact of that.
1: Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. our fear
0: at this age becomes a lot more about a fear of failure. Like what is going to happen? Like what if school gets hard all of a sudden and things are like you used to get like great grades. Now it's trickier. Now it's just not memorizing fact, but using inductive reasoning and trying to like suss out arguments and come up with like reasons that sustain it. And that can be a hard way to think. Mm-hmm. Um, fear of change, like your body is changing, your voice is changing your friends you hang out with change and on that like fear of rejection of criticism, being embarrassed of gossip, disappointing your friends, disappointing your parents. All of these things become more of an issue. Uh, when you become like a late adolescent or into early teenage years, like that fear of rejection. Like if I put myself out there, what if somebody says no? What if someone doesn't like me? Um, embarrassment's a huge one. And again, what I love about this age is if you fuck up one day, if you come in on a Monday and you completely fuck up, like you're walking through the calf, you're wearing your nice white pants and like or your white shirt, you're really feeling it and like you trip and your pudding cup goes everywhere and now you're covered in pudding and everyone's mm-hmm. laughing at you. By Wednesday, somebody else is going to do something equally as fucked up. Mm -hmm. And you're going to be forgotten about. And I'll remind kids like, hey, is this going to matter tomorrow? Probably. A week from now? Yes. A month from now? Not so much. A year Mm -hmm. from now? Probably not. Right? And try Mm -hmm. to put things in that context. So fear can be good. You know, you want to develop that instinct. It can be a good thing. You want to know, like, you want to touch. You want to be able to begin to learn to trust your instinct. And if something is telling you like this is an unsafe situation or this is something like i shouldn't do or say like that's not a bad thing to tap into Mm -hmm. we call that our wise brain like when i do um dbt therapy with persons we talk about like three ways of thinking you have your emotional way of thinking which is like your your obviously your emotions your fears your um, worldview, all of these things that go into like that emotional way of thinking. You have your rational brain that is just like dragnet, just like just the facts, please. Mm -hmm. And then you have your wise brain, which is your gut, your instinct. And it's usually a melding of the two. And if you have a good internal compass, that can be a very good thing to listen to. Mm Mm-hmm if you don't have a good internal compass, do a Costanza and just do the opposite of what all of your <laughs> things tell you to do. Yeah. Um,
2: yeah. There's that book, the gift of fear, which I haven't read, but I've mm-hmm. heard a lot about it. That is essentially just saying like your instincts exist for a reason. You're know? going to
0: write that one down. I just ordered the one that Laura mentioned last night when we recorded. Oh, yeah. I mm-hmm. yeah, uh, just ordered that. So that'll be on a Wednesday. So I'm going to, I'll add the gift of fear to the list. Yeah, um, no, I
2: haven't read it, so I can't vouch for yeah. it. But oh, okay. All but right, I feel it's, like it's it's like the, one of the classics in the genre of like mm-hmm. intuition. You know.
0: Yeah. All right. So all that to say, like that's just a brief overview of like adolescent fears, how fears are developed, and I'm sure we will find a way to touch more on that in a couple weeks when we come back with it, chapter two.
2: Yep. And so now let's descend into the sewers, but not like the novel. There's not going to be any orgies in this episode. I was (laughs) lied to. (laughs) false pretenses (laughs) um so i was thinking and like you said we do have an episode on it chapter one where we talked about the movie in a more general way um so if you're curious about just our overall feelings about it i would highly recommend checking that episode out um but i think since we are talking about childhood fear i thought it might be a good uh way to start To by just kind of running down the fears we see in the movie and what we think maybe might be underlying those fears or what those fears might kind of represent. Because Pennywise exists as a manifestation of fear. Like, Mm -hmm. in the book, he's, spoiler, he manifests as kind of a spider, you know, or the clown is one of his go-tos, but our brain can't really understand what he is like we don't contain the visual references to actually see him so what he does is he is able to read our fears and become that which I think is really interesting and one of the things I think is so, so genius about this book is the way it really explores fear and how fear and friendship you know and how those two can kind of go together too um so because she's the best in the world maybe we could start with Bev Mm-hmm. And and I love her. Um, so what her fear, the movie fear is um, hair in the bathroom coming out of the sink mm-hmm. and blood in the bathroom. And so to me, that screams hitting puberty. Which you know was when your body starts to develop, and if you're if you're old enough to listen, you probably know what happens with that. Um, and so when I think it's
0: time to change. You've got to be a ring. <laughs> Love the Brady Bunch. Sorry, <laughs> oh, that's sorry to cut right. you off.
2: I was like, what? That was no, no, no. Mike, well done. It was, yeah. It just took me a minute to catch the reference. Um, but yeah, and so I think, like Mike, as you were saying, like there is this inherent fear of change and change, fear of your changing body, which I think most of us can probably relate to. But Bev has this added fear also of her father. And once she is of a sexual age, I think she is worried that he's going to start actually abusing her, which is... Is just horrific in so many levels, and I mean, I, it's implied that he hasn't started to mm-hmm. do this yet, but that it is coming, you know. And so I think this hair coming out of the sink is such a, a really unique and not and like visceral way of showing that fear without being super graphic about Mm -hmm. it. You know, like she's not becoming Geordie Verrill from creep show where there's like green grass growing all over. She doesn't become like a werewolf or something, you know? So, so I think that's, uh, you know, I just, it took me a while to really understand. I think what that actually was. I was like, Mm -hmm. Oh, she just hears voices in the sink. I don't, you know, and now that I am older and kind of, you know, understand A little more of that situation that I would like to maybe discuss. But, you know, it's it's just it's a really striking way to show this fear. You know,
0: what do you both think about this idea of that change also being a social change in that the expectations on her as a young woman are going to change? But also like Beverly has a reputation because she's a bit more developed than other young women are and mm-hmm. she earns like a an unearned reputation from the other kids. Like what do you think of like that social pressure that comes along with puberty? I i I think that's there's a that's a very astute
3: observation, honestly. Mm-hmm. And and I think it's all over the text. I mean again, the movie's the only text I really have reference to here, but mm-hmm. you know, the fact that when they all go swimming, um it's it's all the boys just like kind of ogling her while she's just sunning herself innocently. But yeah. she's, you know, she's starting to develop, and they are hormonal boys. And you know, then she looks over at them, and they're all like, oh, oh, what was that? What was it? At the same time, and like, all the different directions and it, uh, like, incredibly obvious. Yes, we know what you guys are doing, but the fact that Henry Bowers talks about her the way that he does, like, you know, all you have to do is ask nicely, like I did. Like, all you know the fact that so many people just take the liberties with her body and her autonomy and her reputation like yeah there's absolutely i i, I would say that's an absolutely astute reading of the text absolutely mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Yeah, there's this idea and I, I'm seeing now that I wrote in the notes that her sexuality is dangerous. And there's this idea that her body has become a liability mm. for her, you know. Cause you could see that same swimming scene taking place two years ago where she has not begun to develop and she's just one of the boys, you know. Right. As as much as I don't love that phrase, one of the boys, like there is no sexual difference between right. this group of friends. But now because she is starting to develop there is. And I mean, there's no, like the boys are all wearing whitey tidies. Like they don't seem super self-conscious about their own bodies. And I'm not saying that they aren't, but it's, it's presented in a way that is different for girls. It's like oh. when, when it is a girl's body, it's like you've, you've done something wrong, mm-hmm. you know, if your body is enticing to others. Whereas I feel like with boys' bodies, it's just. our our bodies Mm -hmm. you know
3: and that's I think a lot of that is a taught response too I mean again Mm -hmm. growing up in a religious environment it's you know women you have to keep your you know your brothers in Christ from sinning no men you have a responsibility look away like that's that's not okay
1: exactly you you can't
3: help yourself it's you you, (laughs) can't you're not an uh, out of control monster unless you choose to be
2: right you just won my heart because that's exactly right (laughs) and I love it when guys say that too yeah yeah. but and I feel like she she is realizing how much more dangerous the world becomes for her because in the book, her mother is still alive, but mm. she works a lot. So she's mm-hmm. just not really around very much. And in the book or in the movie, um the mom is not there. I think I think it's implied that the mom killed her or, or died by suicide, I believe, um although I don't think we ever find out for sure what happened. but right. the Suffice to say, she has nobody to protect her, you know, and there's no older woman to kind of guide her through, or older motherly mm-hmm. figure to kind of, one, protect her from her father and to guide her through this transition. Like she's got to mm-hmm. go buy feminine products herself, which that's that's not easy. Like to figure out how to do all that stuff. It's 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 a lot. And to have yeah. to do that all on your own is just, you know, it's not really fair to her. And-
0: I remember the way King writes Beverly specifically in the interactions with her mother. Like, there is a couple where there's still this innocence to Bev. Like, she doesn't quite understand, like, that, those first, like, pangs of sexuality where Mm -hmm. Beverly's mom at one point asks, like, does your dad ever come into your room or does your dad ever touch you? And Bev has, like, no idea why she would be asking that. It's like, no, like, um she doesn't quite, there is a much more innocence to her. And I think at one point in the writing, like, Richie is like, oh, is this a date? And Beverly, like, stops and thinks for the first time, like, you know, I wouldn't actually mind if this was a date. Mm -hmm. And it's the first time that she ever has any sort of kind of romantic or kind of, like, uh, attractive feelings towards another person. Mm -hmm. And in the movie, there is... I think maybe street smarts might be the way that I would put it. Like, Beverly kind of like understands the score right from the beginning. Mm. When she's introduced to the friends, she is able to help them, like, get the supplies so they can sew Ben back up by flirting with, like, a much, much older, uh, is it Green? I'm trying to think of the shopkeepers. Oh, God, I can't.
2: Mr. Keene. Mr. Keene. Something like that,
0: yeah. She, like, overtly flirts with, mr Keene in mm-hmm. a way that is like that is one of the creepiest because he just looks oily mm-hmm. like there's just oh, like yeah, yeah that is a guy gross. that's not allowed to live within a thousand yards of a school right <laughs> i mean that but he's is... got a
2: teenage daughter i know and she's the worst she is
3: absolutely
0: such the worst a bitch yeah. yeah
2: well and that's another thing because i wanted to talk about too as much as like like I feel like girls are conditioned to grow up like judging other girls when they start to mm-hmm. develop too. Like part of the reason these girls don't like her is probably because they view her as competition for the boys or they, they imagine that she's prettier than her or that she developed first. And so that's another way in which her body has made the world less safe for her, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and Mike, you said something interesting about... Really? you. When? <laughs> how Uh, I feel like it was a couple of weeks ago no um no when you were talking about like she she doesn't quite understand in the book she doesn't quite understand this like sexuality kind of concept Mm because there's a lot more innocence to her character but she knows something's wrong she knows that something about the way her father treats her feels really bad and so because she doesn't have that knowledge because she's not a grown up and she can't see it through the lens that her mom can she starts to internalize all of this mm-hmm. fear I think and that's how she grows up with this kind of this feeling like she did something wrong and I mean spoiler for the next movie she marries a man who's not that much better yeah. than her father right. So, yeah. yeah it's oh Bev in a
0: lot of ways is a lot worse than her father yeah mm. mm-hmm.
2: yeah
0: like and- Tom is an absolute fucking monster
2: yes he is he is and what the scene well we might save it for our next conversation but that scene is uh, that scene means a lot to me in the book Mm -hmm. i really it's hard to read but i love it but but yeah and so i don't know if we want to talk about but one of the things i think is great about bev is because she has already had to go through all of this she is one of the strongest characters Mm -hmm. in the book. She is the one that is, and in the movie, she's the one that's always like, no, we we have to keep going. We can't turn back, you know, as like she and Bill, I think because they have experienced such trauma, they are not as afraid Mm -hmm. as the rest of them.
0: I would compare her like just thinking of like she's kind of like the house whip in the House of Representatives. Like Bill Mm -hmm. is like with the leader of the group. But Beverly is the person that is like constantly bringing everybody else in the line. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like when she speaks, she's able to negotiate. Like everybody tends to listen to her. And Mm -hmm. she's this like really strong character that is not without her flaws. Like, it's not, she's not written in such a way that, oh, she's automatically better at everything than everybody else. Like, no, she feels very three-dimensional.
2: Oh, I was going to talk about the child orgy scene because there's only one girl in the group, you know, and so that is one of the, my issues with the book. Shockingly, I know this is not new territory I'm breaking, but I think in the book she i for a long time i would defend this section i was like i think i see what king is doing i think he is saying that she is she is able to like it's interesting that you use the term the house whip cuz i think that's a good one like she is able to to bring them all back it feels mm-hmm. like she's the heart of the group in a lot yeah. of ways and i think in the book that translates into her being the vagina of the group which i think is reducing her to her sexuality in a way that I think her father does in the book. So that's, that's my issue. I don't love how it's translated in the, the movie, but it, I think it's better than the book. All that to yeah. say, I still think it's a brilliant book. It's just, it, you know,
0: I can see what King is doing and it's cocaine in a lot. Of cocaine. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, that tracks. Yeah. So I do not I don't think the orgy scene is good. Uh, and I don't mean it just, like, from a writing standpoint. Like, ah, here's how I would have written that scene if I were.
2: <laughs> I mean, writing-wise, um, it's actually, you know, it's not
0: bad. Yeah, it's as tasteful as an orgy scene with a bunch of 12-year-olds can possibly be. Uh, you know, it's a tasteful... Um, <laughs> I just lost track of that. What are we doing there. here? <laughs> um, I know, yeah. So, But I think that, I, I will say... I think we forget that like kids do have sexual feelings. They do Uh have feelings. Mm -hmm. Like we want to like by trying to protect children from exploring those feelings, we often push them towards like much baser instinct. Mm -hmm. And that is where, you know, like I wish and I've been very fortunate in that I've not been in situations where like consent is always It's been huge for me, like, but I wish at some point my dad would have sat down with me and said, hey, when you get older and when you go to college, you may find yourself in situations where things might come up and you're going to want something and your partner might not. Here's Mm -hmm. how you handle it respectfully. Mm -hmm. I've been very fortunate that, like, I've never been in a situation where that has become an issue. Mm -hmm. Um, But no one ever had that talk with me. Mm-hmm. like my dad was like, you don't date until you're 16. It's like, no, I'm going to date before that. I'm just going right. to hide it. Mm-hmm. You totally. Know? Yep. Um, and I'm not going to know what to do, you know, and I'm not going to, it was just weird. You know what I mean? Like we try to protect kids from very natural things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not that what happens in that scene is natural, but I read a take on it the other day where it was like, well, Beverly is like sexually assaulted by all of the kids. And I'm like, no, like I they're, don't all read it that way. they're all minors. They're all and like you cannot give consent at that age. Like you're too young. But they're all peers, and also she's the one that initiates it.
2: Yeah, like and she, and they she, all give the same level of consent as right. you know as the same age people. You know, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah, that's I don't it read it as like, an assault.
0: No, and that's where it becomes like well, any interaction between like a man and a woman um, where consent is dubious like it will always be you know the woman who is the victim at that point and I don't see Beverly as a victim in that scene I see her it's a fucked up scene but yeah. you know I think it's trying to write her as like a very powerful character in that moment it's just a fucked up way to show that power
2: it is yeah and I feel like it's just yeah it's just kind of misaligned because I, I do see what he's trying to do it just I don't know yeah um,
0: what if like on King's deathbed? Like, what if, like, when King passes away, like, he... Because, right, like, the big scoop, this, like, oh, um, Snape's Diaries, so you know, like, um, oh, uh, Alan Rickman, like, what he really thought of Harry Potter. What if, like... Five years after Stephen King passes away, like, his journals are published, and he's like, I just wanted to see a bunch of kids fuck. (laughs) I just wanted to see if I could get away with it. You know? Oh. Just.
2: Uh, Well, okay, so there's one more thing I want to talk about before we move on, and it made me think of like another big fear that kids have which is a fear of getting in trouble Mm -hmm. you know which is maybe one of the biggest fears I had when I was a kid and so this fear of getting in trouble often leads us to take risks and do things that are unsafe because we don't feel like we can trust the parents to go to them and talk to them about that so yeah. yeah Oh Well, Stephen. did you know that when we asked you to be part of this episode, we were going to talk so much about uh, child orgy?
3: I mean, I had a feeling it he might demanded. come up. That's <laughs> true. I, 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 spoke to Mike private. I was like, look, if this is not on the table, I'm not, I'm not doing it. So it's
2: in my rider, Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, let's move on to Bill. And so the, the fear that we see manifested with Bill in the movie is Georgie is like reincarnated, not reincarnated, reanimated Georgie or ghost Georgie is lurking around. Um, See him in his, in his basement. We see him. uh, I just remembered. I want to talk about Georgie's fear too, because I think that's Mm -hmm. interesting Mm. and I forgot to put him on the list. Um, But yeah, Georgie is what Bill is afraid of. And when I read that, that, and I think it's pretty explicit. It's, he is afraid that it's his fault. Georgie died, mm-hmm. which just breaks my heart every time, you know?
3: Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. I agree. yeah, you're right. That, that one I think is probably the most direct line. Um, that, and, and, and probably Eddie's as well. I mean, those, mm-hmm. those, those two are pretty direct one-to-one. Um, yeah. and I think there's also like an element of like the guilt mixed with the fear. Cause those two so often go hand in hand. Um, but also, you know the fact that he's responsible for his parents' suffering as well mm, um mm-hmm. and and his his constant need to believe that Georgie is alive, that he's out there somewhere that he has to be is a way to kind of assuage this guilt and overcome mm-hmm. this fear at the same time. I didn't do anything wrong; this was not my fault because he's not really dead; he's still out there he's not he's not dead, he's just missing,
2: yeah. Well, they gives him something active to do also right. instead of just having to grieve, you know, mm-hmm. he can still he can keep searching, you know.
0: The interaction, too, with uh, Bill and his father in the garage when he's like, Dad, look, like, look at this. You know, here's where he could be. And it's months later. It's like, Bill, even if George did survive, like through the sewers, like what is he going to be living on? Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Um But Bill's dad's inability to see how much his son is hurting in that moment. Like Bill's dad is just this raw, open wound at that point. Mm -hmm. And I think one of Bill's fears is also my mom and dad blame me. Mm
1: -hmm. It's not
0: just that he blames himself, but his mom and dad blame Bill. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How could you make this for your brother and have him go out And die in this really horrific way. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, In Stand By Me, Gordy in the Body, like one of the saddest parts of that book and movie is like when Gordy's older brother dies, Gordy is already kind of invisible to his mom and dad. Like he's already Mm -hmm. an afterthought. Um, But the only interaction you see Gordy have with his dad in the movie is his dad saying to him, you know why can't you have friends like your brother like you hang mm-hmm. out with a bunch of losers mm. like that is like the only that's a way that and by saying like you hang out with a bunch of losers he's implying like you too are a loser yeah. um and in, in it in, in it you see like bill is a non-entity to his parents like mm-hmm. there's just nothing there anymore like all of the love has been washed out of the home at that point and it just feels you feel the heaviness of the air in Bill's home and how there's just nothing but oppression Yeah, mm-hmm. and nothing but this like weight that hangs over them.
3: You had said something earlier, Mike, about the worst thing that you can do in response to a child's fear is, is ridicule them. And I mm-hmm. feel like we see that in Bill's parents a lot. Like, no, this is, this is silly. This is stupid. He's gone. He's, he's yep. dead. Quit taking stuff. Out. We see it with Stan as well. I know we haven't gotten there yet, but what we see it there. And then we see kind of the opposite with Eddie, whose mother is feeding into his tumors. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's, I mean, it, it's interesting that we see kind of both sides and how damaging both of those behaviors mm-hmm. can be. Um, right.
2: Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's interesting because in the book, Georgie is confirmed dead like they they are not searching for him he they he they pulled his arm off they didn't find his arm but they found his body and so I think in the book it's more like Bill wants to go into his room and Bill wants to remember him and his parents can't handle that which Mm -hmm. and I mean it's hard for me to really fault the parents too because that is a tragedy I can't imagine and don't want to but it's it's just one of those situations where it's like they need some outside intervention to to help them through this you know
0: there's that brief brief scene in the book where bill's dad tries to remove some of the belongings from george's room like months Mm -hmm. later and mom has like a meltdown like she Mm -hmm. absolutely loses her shit and dad just like quietly puts everything back and they never speak of it again and that is like one of the most heartbreaking scenes, and the and it's such a like a one off like quiet little moment, and it just like it hurts. And yeah. I, as a parent, you know, like one of the worst, your worst fear as a parent is that you're going to outlive your kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and all my wife and have is our daughter, like. God, this is going to sound awful. Like, we don't even have a backup kid. You yeah, don't have a spare. So we don't have <laughs> oh, my gosh. But, um, is that why I have why? a little sister? Shit. So, so that that's not how I mean it. No, I know what you mean. Like, if something were to happen to her, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how I would go on. Right.
2: Well, and that's something we were considering when we were making a decision to... whether we wanted to have kids or not, is did we want to do something irreversible and then something horrific happened to our children and then we can't have anymore? You know, it's just something that you have to think about and it is horrific. And that scene at the beginning, it's like a brilliant piece of writing. And I feel like the movie, aside from some iffy CGI that I don't love, but I think the movie really does Mm -hmm. a great job bringing this scene to life, Um, but it's horrifying. It's, this is, I think one of the scariest is the scariest scene in the book for me. Do
0: either of you remember any of the discourse when this movie first came out and was a massive hit? Like, is it chapter one, actually a horror movie? Like there were arguments that were made, like, actually it's a drama. It's like a childhood drama,
2: I think I vaguely remember that. I mm-hmm. probably blocked it out because I think it's stupid. To be. I was gonna say, I mean, I,
0: listeners, you, yeah, you can't see Jen's face, but <laughs> right,
2: like, yeah, it's a shape-shifting monster. <laughs> yes, it's our mm-hmm.
3: that that yeah. I don't know. They're, they're the the gatekeeping within any fan community is really kind of disgusting, um, yeah. and I mean, and it it unfortunately exists within any fan community. I think fan. Mm-hmm. This is my personal stance, and you. Your mileage may vary, but I think fandom, by its very nature, is toxic. Um, like, mm-hmm. I, again, your mileage may vary on that opinion. I take a very hardline stance on it, mm-hmm. and that's okay. But like, just by nature of the fact that fan is short for fanaticism, like there's mm. there's an element of toxicity to that. Yeah. So, you know, the, the the gatekeeping I think within any fan community is is really terrible, and the fact that we we now have this discussion of what is and isn't a horror movie, you know, we've got this a twenty four elevated horror i know people hate the term but you know is that horror like is horror that's trying to say something actually horror well yes of course it is because yeah any genre movie it worth its soul, exactly yeah. is always trying to make a comment on something good right. science fiction good horror good westerns any good genre film is going to be trying to comment on something so I, I think a lot of that is is very gatekeepy and well you know if it's not like halloween or you know like if it's not the kind of horror that i like the
0: trashy schlocky horror that i like to digest it's not really horror well this was different though this wasn't horror fans saying like oh this isn't horror like this was like some in the kind of like critical community trying to take this away from horror fans saying Mm. that something like this good and this successful is too good to be horror and you know my argument is like if the first scene of your movie is an interdimensional shape-shifting monster that poses as a clown living in the sewer gnaws off a child's arm before dragging him into his death in the sewer i don't care if like then if you just show like the next two hours you show caddy La- shack <laughs> that that's the rest of the movie right. this is a horror movie right okay? yeah okay to say mm. nothing of, you know, the
3: jump scares throughout mm-hmm. the oh game. yeah, like mm-hmm. I I legitimately don't understand how you can make the argument that it's not horror, yeah. right? It doesn't it's, make any sense yeah. to me.
2: That's I think that a lot of times comes from people that don't really understand a lot
1: or about like horror. horror or like horror, yeah, not even like, horror, and they want
2: but to but say are... like this is so- something I like can't be horror because I don't like horror. Correct. You know? There's
0: an adversarial component to your relationship with the genre at that point where mm-hmm. you less, you feel the need to kind of take it away you can't acknowledge that something is that good right
2: because right. if this is like we just said this is an examination of fear and horror and terror and if this isn't horror then nothing mm-hmm. is you know yeah. Um, yeah themes visuals like all of it It's it's like kind of encapsulates what the genre is which is partly why I love it so much and why it has stood the test of time I think Um, so let's move on to Georgie and we we unfortunately don't get too much with him, but he does have this great scene where he goes down into the basement Mm. and he sees these eyes and I just love it so much because that's like, that's what every kid sees when you're like walking through your hall. Like my kids, we've lived in our house for like a year now and they still get scared if the lights aren't on downstairs, you know, Or, or if the lights aren't on upstairs and they'll want me to turn the lights on for them before they get downstairs. And it's their own home. You know, Which I think is, you know, I get it. I was afraid of the Mm -hmm. dark for a long time because you don't know. Like I feel like that is, for me, it like encapsulates this fear of the unknown, you know, and this lack of structure and security.
0: And what is anxiety? At the end of the day, anxiety is a fear of the variables, a fear Mm -hmm. of the things that we feel are out of our control. Mm -hmm. Like if you, if something is within your control, within your grasp, you're much. You're not going to be anxious about it because you exhibit some level of control over it. Mm-hmm. Anxiety happens when things feel like they are no longer in our hands. When it feels like someone else has taken the wheel and we are a blindfolded passenger that doesn't know which way the ship is heading.
2: Yeah, and, and if you fear- can see which way the ship is heading, you could at least protect yourself. And mm-hmm. it's you know. Um. All right. Well, let's move on to Eddie and eddie i love eddie i
3: love eddie uh, so much
2: yeah he's I, I wanted to ask jonathan who's your favorite of the losers who's jonathan i'm sorry steven oh okay i don't okay. know why i have jonathan in my head
0: future mike
2: i'm sorry i i don't know what's in you're my head fine, you're um, fine. And, <laughs> and steven i'm i meant to ask you earlier who's your favorite of the losers uh ben Ben. It's it's Aww.
3: 100% Ben with a with a bullet. I I was in in so many ways I was Ben. Uh yeah. with with you know like a smattering of of Richie kind of thrown in there just kind of peppered in, but no, I mm. was I was very much Ben. The 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 awkward fat kid who um some people liked but most people found very off-putting. Um mm. not that I have that chip still on my shoulder. <laughs> um so but you know, I mean yeah, no, it's it's 100% Ben. He's Ben's my boy.
2: I love Ben. He's one of my favorites too. And you know what? I'm going to call an audible. Let's talk about Ben. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Cause I love him so much. Same. Um, and he, he is one that is, his story is different in the book. And then in the movie, because in the book, he is not the historian. He's not the one who compiles all the information about dairy, but he is able to build the dam and the barons. Like he's got this really incredible, like knowledge of structure and he, he becomes an architect. Um, and a lot, and his love for Bev is the same, which right. I just love. Um, but what I think is interesting, like his his fear that we see in the movie is this headless Easter egg hunter, which is one of the scariest scenes in the movie. I think for sure when he takes that step down and you see that he doesn't have a head, it's just perfect. It's terrifying.
0: It it's great. Cause it's one of the. It's one of the asides from the book that is – or the interludes from the book that is referenced with, like, the um, Ironworks explosion. Like, you get to see – even though you don't get the whole thing, you get to see some of the aftermath of it in that book. And then one of the great little Easter eggs of the movie is, like, the librarian in the background. Like, Uh just staring daggers at him. Oh fucking love it's that whole scene so, is so good. Creepy. Yeah, mm-hmm.
3: I I that that might be one of my favorite kind of creepy little background moments in the in, in a movie full of creepy background moments that's easily mm-hmm. my favorite one.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, just the, like the malevolence of the adults in this town, you know. I'm- and
0: Ben is still the new kid like in the book and yeah. the movie like he is new, he's trying to find his way around and he you know he has that crush on On Beverly. Um, And like, I was also like in fifth and sixth grade in particular, like really round. Mm -hmm. And I just remember like being really like at that age, being very self-conscious about my body in particular. And what, not even what other kids would say, but like I had an uncle that used to call me rerun. And I don't know if kids that aren't familiar, there was a show in like the late seventies that was on it was in syndication in the 80s called what's happening now Mm, mm -hmm. and like the breakout character from it was rerun and it was like a very overweight character hey 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 so like 11 year old me do you remember the show or the i remember the character yeah okay so like my uncle like all the time would call me rerun and i would be in tears like it fucking hurt so Mm -hmm. you know ben being like and you see it a little, like it's alluded to here, like he's wearing like a sweatshirt when Bowers mm. catches him, even though it's like the first day of summer vacation, like but right. he doesn't want anyone to see any part of his body. And even when they're in the swimming scene, like one of his fears, and this gets into that childhood fear, like fear of rejection. It's mm. why, mm-hmm. it's why he anonymously sends Beverly this poem, right. because like in his, he he can't imagine a world where someone he thinks is as beautiful and perfect as Beverly would ever be interested in a short little tubby dude like himself. Which is so heartbreaking because I was that short little tubby dude that once serenaded a girl named Karen to Van Hagar's "Why Can't This Be Love" and then Aww. gave her a teddy bear and she was like "Fuck off, dude." <laughs> so poor one out.
2: I mean, I had, I had some very similar phases and I have always been super self-conscious about my Mm -hmm. body and because food is my comfort in a lot of ways, you know, and I think we see that with Ben also. Um, And I think I just love him so much. He reminds me a lot of my brother also, which I think Mm -hmm. is partly, you know, but it's like he, and I think you can see this a little bit more in the book, but it's like, he just accepts that Bev loves Ben. Bill because Bill is above him in some way. And I think a lot of it is based on how on their appearance, you know, and he just, he automatically sees himself as in a lower cast of the kids, you know, which just breaks my heart because he's so kind and he's so sweet. Um, He, and
0: he has the Ralph Wiggum movie in this book in this movie where you see his heartbreak on screen uh, like when they're uh-huh. at beverly's apartment yes and he sees the two of them together uh and then later like when they're swimming like you could see a version of this where like ben dunks bill underwater and drowns <laughs> and him just
2: murders him yeah. <laughs> just not my be ben awesome. but yeah
3: <laughs> no I, well yeah that i mean ben is in in so many ways like again Mike. my hella relatable and in some ways i still kind of find myself relating to ben and and never having outgrown a lot of those things um mm-hmm. not to not to make this my own personal therapy session or anything but <laughs> oh, no. um
2: that's what we do here at this pod okay oh, yeah, okay okay
3: <laughs> uh i mean really it's, all it's podcasts are podcasters one
0: of us breaks into tears
2: really. <laughs> that's, that's true yeah
3: i mean it's been happening a lot lately so who knows um but no i mean there's just there's so much to that that I mean, reminds me of my own childhood, Um, you know, being the fear of embarrassment about something as as simple as the kind of music that you listen to and the kind of music Mm -hmm. that you enjoy, because it's it's not the kind of thing that is expected of a boy that age. Like New Kids on the Block, that's teenage girl music. That's not teenage boy music. Like, Mm -hmm. what do you what do you think that they're cute like all the girls do? What could you possibly like about this thing? And, you know, there's. What what kid at that age, at least on some level, is not, you know, absolutely terrified of being embarrassed like that. And the fact that you can see why he loves Bev like she is she considers him when so many other people don't like she's she's kind and she's you know, she sees the new kids poster and she's like, no, I know what this is going to do to you. I am I'm not going to call this out like. Right. She is in in every sense and in every way the friend that he needs, and you can absolutely see anybody kind of misconstruing those feelings as something else, or allowing those feelings to develop into something else, which I think is what he ultimately ends up doing. Um, yeah. And yeah, it it is kind of heartbreaking, you know. And again, having been that kid so many times, it 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 still kind of hurts,
2: right. Yeah. Yeah. And I love how she is because she doesn't pity him at all. You know, I love how you said she considers him like she just she treats him like everybody else, you know, and I think part of it is because she has felt this rejection, too. Mm. And it's possible that like we've talked we've talked about both of them having this like inherent fear of their bodies and this appearance. So I think maybe she can kind of relate to him on some level that maybe neither of them really understand yet. Mm. But but I think. So in the book, he sees a mummy and that is, and it's a really terrifying scene in the book. Like it's a winter day and he's walking home and the mummy almost gets him. And I love how they adapt his fear here because like they take this element of this this books that he's pouring over in the library completely alone because he doesn't have anything else to do and because he likes it. But so like if I were to put my, analytical hat on like that tells me that maybe one of the fears that he is living with is that even this place isn't safe for me. Mm-hmm. Like there is no place that I'm going to be accepted right. or that is going to no. be a home, mm-hmm. you know, which just, again, just breaks your heart, you know?
0: And again, not to always bring it back to the book, but there's like a, a really wonderful aside where if it, when, when Ben is in the library, like he's gets his books and he's really happy and, King makes the comment like if somebody were to ask Ben at that moment if he were lonely, he would be confused by the question mm-hmm. because it never it's what it, it's kind of like wonderful but also heartbreaking at the same mm-hmm. time. Like Ben has never really considered a world where he could have friends. It's just yeah. like that is something that other kids have. Right. Mm-hmm. Um. So therefore, like I have my books and I have my you know ability to create these really cool structures, but like friends is a completely you know foreign a completely foreign concept to him
2: yeah it's like when my daughter put glasses on for the first time and mm-hmm. it's like she's like oh you know which is just mm-hmm. one of those moments yeah yeah um which to me just speaks to how much these fears internalize
1: yeah.
2: or manifest as this internal like i don't want to mm-hmm. say self-loathing but just the way we view ourselves. it shapes how we yeah. grow into an adult um all right, well let's go back to Eddie cuz I do love Eddie. Mm. I think he's he's the comic relief in a lot of these scenes, especially he, him and Richie, you know.
0: He steals a lot of Richie's thunder cuz he's he does, a lot yeah. he's way funnier than Richie. And it's <laughs> it's the
3: casting. It all comes down to the oh, casting. Yeah. Like that yeah. actor and I was sitting there racking my brain as I was watching this movie again, like what else has this kid done? He's he's Freddie Freeman in Shazam, which is he's easily the best part of Shazam.
1: Easily the best part.
3: It's yeah. Shazam's, Shazam's pretty is fun. fun. It's fun. It's very and and he's the best part of it, honestly.
2: Yeah, I've heard it's really good, and I love him in this role. He's so and good. I think he brings a, a playfulness and a humor that is not really present in the book. Like I don't think Eddie is as funny and as fun in the book as he is in the movie. You know, I still love Eddie in the book, but it's not quite the same dynamic. You know,
0: Right. Eddie in the book is like awestruck yeah he is like a grateful that these kids are friends with him but there is like a certain amount of like unhealthy hero worship with eddie yeah uh, especially when it comes to bill Mm -hmm. and i think that might be where you pick up like the queer in the book i think you can pick up the queer undertones of eddie as it pertains to how he feels about bill and not Mm -hmm. richie uh, which is kind of shifted here, but you can see where that kind of hero worship of Bill is kind of like what we might identify as like the fawning of our first crush on somebody.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, and I feel like I could read it as maybe like a burgeoning sexuality developing, mm-hmm. but I could also read it as like he is an ideal. You know, he is like who I want to be. He's the cool guy that I wish mm-hmm. I was. You know, um, kind of aspirational. But- exactly yeah and i mean i had friends like that you know they're like you're so pretty Mm -hmm. i wish i could be that pretty you know um but so what we see eddie afraid of is the leper and i think the leper is terrifying that's another moment where the cgi i think distracts me a little bit it's not terrible Mm -hmm. but it's you know
0: it's a good haunted house prop yeah
2: yes yes Exactly. Exactly. Yeah.
0: And that's the thing about so much of the scares in this movie. Like, they are the equivalent of, like, walking through... And a Haunted House in October. Like, mm-hmm. yes, they're scary, but they're like hella fun at the same right. time. Mm-hmm. Which
2: is partly why I love this movie so much and why I didn't... Like, it's funny because for a long time I would tell my friend Kara, who we went to see the movie together, I was like, I can't read things with, where kids are in danger or where kids die. But I was so excited to see this movie. <laughs> and she was like, how do you reconcile this This you've been telling me? And it's because I feel like it is... I think that puts that kind of encapsulates wise because it feels like walking through a haunted house also because yeah. I know the story so well I know what's mm-hmm. going to happen you know but um, but yeah so but I think the leper I mean the, this one I feel like is a pretty clear one like his mother has instilled this really really deep fear of germs infection sickness anything in him which I mean that's not a bad fear to be afraid of germs but I think mm-hmm. Eddie in moderation to the extreme exactly. exactly right yeah
0: it gets to the point where you become a hypochondriac Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. you know, that's when you start to live in, in a hermetically sealed bubble. And how am I going to step in this one? Um, (laughs) I feel like we're at at that point right now where there are reasonable amount of precautions that we can take in order to kind of reenter the world right now. No COVID is not over. Uh, it is still kind of that borderline pandemic slash endemic, but you know, there are things you can do like wearing a good mask, getting the new booster that will protect against some of the variants and then do like a calculated risk of like how bad. And of course, if you're someone who's immunocompromised, I understand that this doesn't apply to every person, um, I actually am a little nervous now around persons that are like, it's three years later and I'm still not going out anywhere. That to me is like, now it's become, there needs to be like a healthy amount of calculated risk you can take in your life in order. Cause I think it's just as unhealthy to isolate yourself that much. And I, mm.
2: yeah. And I think that is a decision that I think, like I understand people making different decisions for themselves and for their families based on their situation based on where they live but yeah i think we see this fear taken to an extreme Mm -hmm. here and we see the damage that it has done to to eddie Mm -hmm. you know and one of my favorite moments of the movie is when he says it's a gazebo and just he gets the word placebo wrong Mm -hmm. which is just so cute yeah um But, okay, so, Mike, I want to ask, would you diagnose Eddie's mom with Munchausen by Proxy? Munchausen by Proxy?
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Um, I mean, as much as we ever diagnose a character from
0: a movie. Yeah, I don't know. I think for that, uh, you need to be a patron and turn into that $10 (laughs) tier. Um, Wow, that was a masterful plug, Mike. uh, That was well done. I don't know if I would go quite that far. Mm -hmm. Um, I think eddie's mom is much more of like a helicopter parent to the extreme Mm
1: -hmm. and what
0: she's done is she's like because she still allows him to go out with his friends Mm -hmm. he's still allowed to go out into the world and and be around these these kids and i think that like i think if she and I know at one point she's like, no, you can't hang out with him anymore. But it's like right after he breaks his fucking arm. I was going to so say, that's kind of extenuating. As a parent, him. I'd probably be like, if I, I'd be like, Ada, if you went out with some buddies and like broke your arm in the woods, I might have the visceral reaction. Like, yeah, you're going to cool it with these kids for a little while. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, so I don't know if I would co- go quite that far. Maybe in the book it would be a lot closer to it. I think that you can make a really strong argument for it there but that's a really good question yeah um i will say one of the things that leans into the category of like eddie being afraid of his queerness is what is it that the leper wants to do with eddie like he wants to give eddie a blowjob mm-hmm. and i believe that's in the movie as well like i believe yep. like that's also there as well where like so you know like it's not just like this this he's not afraid that this leper is going to give him that disease and his skin is going to fall off. It's like, no, like we're going to commit this like sexual act together. And that is what like really drives Eddie's fear. And he's, there's that fear of like, is this what sex is? Is this what sex is? If it's with another man Mm -hmm. at that point. So I think you can read that element there where like Eddie is like very much like suppressing his queerness and, very, very worried about like what if others find out about it. And he's the yeah. one that pointedly
3: brings up the AIDS uh, epidemic as well when they're mm-hmm. when they're bike riding into town. Like it's it's yeah, it feels like a throwaway reference, but in that context, I think that mm-hmm. that's a lot more illuminating. Yeah,
0: mm-hmm. and this is like just at that like this is pre Magic Johnson getting diagnosed with HIV mm. and the public discourse around the disease beginning to shift a bit. Where it was, and there are others that are much better equipped to speak on this than I am, but like the, uh, one of the great tragedies of the eighties are the hundreds of thousands of queer men's lives that were like really like tossed aside into like the dustbin of history Mm -hmm. because we had an administration that felt in a public that felt like they were getting what they deserved. Mm -hmm. This was some sort of divine retribution. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, that's. Fucked
2: up. It's horrifying. Yeah, yeah. There's well, I just watched something that also touches on elements of that, but I won't spoil it. Um, well, let's move on to Mike,
1: mm-hmm. maybe. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, who is another? I think my favorites are Ben, Mike, and Bev. Those are my three favorites. I just fucking love Mike so much. I feel like the biggest flaw for me in this movie is I feel like Mike gets short shrift. Oh here, yeah, definitely. You know? He just doesn't have that much to do and Ben gets to do what he does in the book, you know?
0: Um, Which I don't get. I don't understand why you make that change. It doesn't
3: make... I think you do it just to give, to make Ben more of an entity for the romantic love triangle in part two, honestly. Yeah, I think Which is a shitty reason to do it, but I think that's why Mm -hmm. you do it.
2: Yeah, or, you know, I guess if they're trying to dovetail the library, you know, the the research and the library if ben is always the one in the library Mm -hmm. so i don't know but yeah it, it bugs the shit out of me um and also because in the book he has this great relationship with his dad and i love those scenes and so in the movie his parents have died and so what mike sees is burning hands from the other side of the door which is trauma from his parents' death when he was a child and them try It's, it's a horrific story. Like, I think he was maybe one or two, I think. And they were trying to reach him or trying to get out themselves. And it's just, it's just
1: awful.
0: And I, I know you have to condense things through a movie. What's unfortunate is like Mike is the, well, Ben has a pretty healthy relationship with his mother. Like Ben's mom is like a very sweet, trying the best that she can. Single mom and the book is in the fifties when it would have been even more difficult to be a single parent. Mm -hmm. But Mike, as I remember it, is really the only of the Losers Club that has a healthy relationship with his mom and dad. Like there is a real the interlude scenes where like Mike writes about his dad and they've grown more poignant to me as I've gotten older, because I lost my dad when I was 19. So just a little but you know, a few years older than Mike. Or actually, Mike would have lost his dad when he was in college. So right around that age. Mm-hmm. Um, the interactions between Mike and his dad are, like, really beautiful mm-hmm. in this, and in with Mike and his mom as well. And I think that it robs Mike's character of something to... Give him the backstory where, like, his parents are essentially murdered by mm-hmm. the Bowers. If I remember it, it's like the Bower, or I don't know if Henry says, I wish I did it. Yeah, he says, I'm mad that I didn't do okay. it myself. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that there's enough, you can do enough with like the racial overtones and how difficult it would be to be like the one African American family in a predominantly white town small town like Derry, Mm -hmm. without having to like rob mike you already have taken so much of his backstory away Mm -hmm. it really sucks that 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 that's the route they choose to go here
2: i agree and to see how that manifests in it chapter two really bothers me also Mm -hmm. which is a conversation for our next episode but yeah and and just to saddle him with this trauma you know on top of the trauma that he already experiences um and i think and like i'm also finding myself thinking like what what is there to say about his fear it's a pretty clear cut one like Ryan. he's just afraid this loss mm-hmm. has you know and and like Because of where he is now, like he is placed in a position of killing Mm. because of this loss, and he probably wouldn't be there if not for his dad. Like, I remember in the book, his dad will like send him on like scavenger hunts for things, you know, or like do these chores and then go find a like a fun rock or something. That's probably not what it is, Mm -hmm. but you know, so yeah,
0: it it robs us too of like one of the scariest interactions between one of the losers and it like that showdown in the standpipe yeah basically like throws like the the moment where mike realizes like oh my god birds can get smaller because they're mostly feathers Mm -hmm. like that's a terrifying scene and it sucks that we're robbed of that
2: well and even just like he's in the standpipe and he sees three like shadowy figures you Mm -hmm. know it's just oh it gives me the chills yeah yeah. Well, is there anything else we want to say about Mike
1: before we move on? I just I mean, I
3: think his fear is so rudimentary because you've stripped him of everything that makes him interesting. And that's. Yeah, that's, I agree. I mean, that's that's the big tragedy of Mike in this movie in these movies, I guess I should say, um, yeah. you know, because, again, I'm talking to my friend as we're watching this movie and she says, you know, they pretty much give everything that Mike does to to Ben. And it it, it, it he see it. It plays up the idea of, of tokenism. Which I don't think, honestly, it doesn't sound like that's the case in the book, but it, it definitely seems like that here when you rob him of all of his backstory and everything that makes him a unique character.
2: Right, because yep. you're taking away his humanity right. as a character, and that when uh, we did a Losers Club episode where I talked to Scott Woods, who was also a guest on our Angel Heart episode, talked about Stephen King's magical Negroes because he has you know a iffy track record on writing characters of color, but I don't think that Mike in the book is, and I think mm. Mike in the movies is, you I mean, know, maybe yeah. not a magical Negro character, but he, yeah,
0: I think that if Mike didn't have the role of Bringing all the losers back together. And honestly, like if Mike was another white kid, you you see sometimes where characters are condensed out of movies. Yep. And I guarantee at some point somebody pitched the idea, like, well, he's a character we can get rid of at this movie. Like, he's not that important. And then someone else said, then we only have, like, no, we don't have any black characters at that point. What if we make him a goldfish? Right. (laughs) That was (laughs) what they do with Stan. It's like they don't give him anything interesting at all to do. And like his race is interesting in it, the book, because like it plays directly into why Bowers hates him so much. Mm -hmm. And why, like, when Bowers chases after Mike and it leads to the rock fight, it's the first time in the book that the other, his like posse, starts to feel afraid of Henry. They're like, uh, something is really wrong with this dude.
2: Right. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, and it's just like, in the poisoning Mr. Chips, like all of that oh, shit. Oh,
2: I can't read that scene is anymore. Is
0: so, you just remove a lot of the inherent backstory that forms Mike to so that he's just like, like you said, Stephen, like it's just a token character and that right. sucks.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, and there's, when we talk about Mike and Bev like I feel like the other five losers you know Stan, Eddie, Richie, Bill and Eddie like they are losers because of aspects of their personalities Mm -hmm. and Bev and Mike are losers because of who they are because of things that they cannot change about themselves and things that they can't hide they can't outgrow you know and so it's just a different a different level of fear and trauma and you know. So, yeah, I I love Mike. Book Mike wins my heart forever. um, Well, speaking of Stan, let's let's talk about Stan because I love Stan, too. And I feel like, you know, no spoilers for It Chapter 2, but there's, you know, there's a reason we don't talk as much about Stan. Right. Um, But I feel like in this book, he's or in this version of the story, he's just as present as everyone else. Mm-hmm. And I think the flute lady is terrifying. Like Agreed. she is probably the scariest monster in my opinion that it manifests as. And it's completely different in the book. Who is she in the book? Who, it's the
0: three children of? at the restaurant. That's
2: right. I think I was mixing that with, um, yeah. that's with, what I yeah. 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 You're right. Um, but here it's the flute lady, which is terrifying on its own. Um, I could not make a sound on the flute in my woodwind methods class. So flutes are already scary for me, but um, th- this is a picture on the wall in his father's study. So I think it's just this perfect manifestation of this fear of disappointing his father or not mm-hmm. being enough, you know?
3: And I think in a larger way, because of, because of his father's role within the community, there's this element of, well, if I disappoint my father, then I'm disappointing you know, the Lord, and I'm letting down, you know, this, these Mm. thousands of years of beautiful tradition from Sandy Koufax to, or from Moses all the way to Sandy Koufax. Like, you know, you've got kind of this, this great story, Jewish, which again, his father lays on. you know, the rabbi's son can't even do his Torah reading. Like there's this Again, this guilt and this ridicule that's kind of placed on him as a result, and you know, as someone who grew up again, just to just keep calling back to this. this is the point at which my co-host on disenfranchised would start making fun of me mercilessly for <laughs> for continuing <laughs> to bring up my religious background but um and no, he's, he, just... and he's right to do oh, yeah. so, but you know um I bring it up a <laughs> lot because I mean, it's the reason I wasn't able to watch so many movies and I didn't engage with so yeah. many different kinds of things, so it comes up a lot. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, as someone who grew up in, in again, a very, very strict religious tradition, um, I grew up. Um, well, I won't, I won't call it the denomination, but, a, but a particularly limiting, at least in the area that I'm currently residing in, a very limiting and restrictive uh, evangelical denomination, or I guess holiness denomination, technically.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, but to, to grow up in that, there is a, a, an element of that kind of fear of. I mean, within any religion, there's the fear of the afterlife and what will happen to you after you die, but then also the fear of, well, what if I'm not enough? What if I'm not living up to the expectations, not just of my own parents, but of, you know, the those many true saints and believers who've gone on before? Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think, and I don't know if that's, again, I don't know if that's in the text or if that's just me kind of reading into it based on my own background, but I, I would be remiss if I didn't at least mention that here.
2: Yeah, no, I think it is. And I think this, this element of the his bar mitzvah, I don't remember it being as big of a deal in the or as explicit in it's the book. Me I, neither. I yeah, uh, but I, I think it's a, a perfect way to show this because it is such a public display of proficiency in something. You know, he is, like you said, the rabbi's son, and he is about to have this, like, public declaration of his manhood, which, quote-unquote manhood, which I could also... See is like that's a a whole fear in and of itself in a way similar to how we talked about with Bev, not quite the same thing, but like the word I am now a man like that just implies so many things. And, you know, I could see being terrified that I'm not going to live up to that, you know, all the
3: pressures and restrictions and obligations that come with Maturity and right. recognizing that you don't feel any of those things, and those things are in and of themselves terrifying.
2: Yeah. And one thing I think is interesting about Stan, too, and this I, I don't want to step too much on what we'll talk about in the next one, but I think there's this fear that he is not up for this mm-hmm. or that he is not as strong as the other ones, you know, or that he's going to be the weak link. They pepper that think,
3: throughout, and I think it's really yeah. well done.
2: I think so too. Yeah, because it's not or that they're gonna abandon him, right. you know, which I think we see in the sewers when he gets bit. And I mean, I don't think they intentionally do, but to me that kind of trans translates to like even in this group of losers, like I'm the outsider. Yeah. Right. You, know?
3: you left me at Nybolt, you left me at Nybolt. Yeah.
2: Right. Yeah.
0: There's a, fastidio- uh, a fastidiousness to Stan, and I think that mm-hmm. comes across in both, like the book and in the movie, in terms of how he presents himself. That even at a really young age, uh, Stan is.
2: We have a cat appearance. It's been a while. <laughs> yes uh, <laughs> mark your bingo card <laughs>
0: just refuses to die oh, oh. no <laughs> so there is this like fastidious Stan is basically an adult like he presents very much like yeah. an adult does like he doesn't want to Eddie doesn't want to get his clothes dirty in the sewers because like disease mm-hmm. Stan doesn't want to get his like gosh dirty right um, he dresses like a 40 year old dad in a suburb polo like, shirts there's and khakis that, Yep. Feels like super, super old about him. And what's interesting at the end of the movie, Stan is the one, not Bill, that tells him we need to promise to come back. Mm-hmm. Stan is the one that like makes them make the blood oath to come back. And it kind of goes counter to what he does because you're right. Like he's the one that says, I can't do this. Like mm-hmm. he's the one that takes the other, the other road out. Takes himself off the board. Mm -hmm. Takes himself off the board. Um, Because like he knows that as an adult, like as a kid, he eventually comes around. He's the one that's like, this isn't real. These things aren't real. There's no way it can, these things shouldn't exist. They can't exist. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And the only thing that saves him is like, there's that little bit of like the childhood mind that is still there, that can still hold on to that magic and accept things that should not be. But I think he, even as a child, he realizes when I'm older, I'm not going to be able to accept this anymore. Mm. Mm. No, my fears are going to be about accounting. My fears are going to be about can we pay the mortgage? Can we afford that vacation home? Um, We don't get a lot of... In the book stan as an adult like i love how the story is relate related Mm -hmm. because like he's just like super easy peasy like everything to him like there's like a a gracefulness to stan as Mm -hmm. an adult where everything just sort of comes natural and he never is worried about anything until he gets that call
1: right Mm -hmm. yeah
2: yeah and it speaks to like an awareness of his own boundaries i think like he 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 knows himself, I think maybe more than any of the other losers, you know? Mm-hmm. So, and he, I know in our last episode, I think, um, we talked a lot about Stan and about, you know, how I feel like he's overlooked a lot of times, you know? And I think he, he really has my heart in this adaptation. I think this adaptation gives him mm-hmm. kind of a personality. Like he does have a personality in the book and he doesn't, in a thousand pages, you know, He's a main character, but, you know, I I just love Wyatt Olaf, I believe, plays him in the movie and does a great job.
0: He does. Everything with Stan in the movie, I take it from the perspective of it's how everybody else is remembering Stan Mm -hmm. as opposed to Stan remembering his own story Mm. because he's not around to remember or recall his own story anymore. Yeah.
2: Mm do have a hair of an issue with his part in chapter two, but we'll talk about that in our next episode. Mm-hmm. Um, Moving on to Richie who, God damn it. I said that I love Ben and Beth. I love Richie too. Richie, Richie has grown on me a lot over the years as I've read this book, because I feel like he really does kind of aside from Bev become like the second in command or like he, he's just so brave in the story, you know, Um. In the book it's a little bit different but here like he's the one that's like no we're not going to leave Bill behind like no he's he's our friend he's the first one to say fuck i got to go do street fighter i'm not doing this this is way mm-hmm. too scary but he's also the one to really rally them when Bev can't and right, when Bill right. can't you know Um and he he and he's unique too because in the book too like i feel like he's one of the last ones to really experience Pennywise and to experience this fear and it could be that he is not allowing himself to see this because he's hiding behind humor so much but I think it's really interesting um, in the movie how they kind of make this manifest because he is a marionette in a coffin and so he says he's afraid of clowns but I think it's like he's afraid he is the clown he's afraid that like he this humor that he uses to hide his fear and his fear of being vulnerable is not actually safe that that's going to turn against him at some point.
3: Mm. Yeah, I mean it's it's clear he's using humor as a defense mechanism, like so many smart ass kids do.
2: Absolutely, um, like this one. <laughs> same,
3: honestly. Yeah, same. Yeah. I, oh gosh, look at us! Ain't we ain't we a trio? I, know. <laughs> um,
2: <laughs> I feel like half of podcasters probably have can relate to that for sure. You know?
3: <laughs> but I mean, you know, so he's he's absolutely using that as his defense mechanism, as his way from having to confront the things that he's actually afraid of. Mm. Um, and, and you know, I find it interesting that he's attempting to use the thing that he's afraid of and, and weaponizing it in, in a way that protects him. Uh, you yeah. know, I'm afraid of clowns, so I will become that which I fear. Like, mm-hmm. he's, he's like Batman in that way, you know. Teenagers and and kids are a superstitious and cowardly lot, so I must become Mm -hmm. the very thing I fear so that I may make them fear me as well, except it doesn't work for him. And most Mm -hmm. people don't find him as funny as he seems to find himself. Right. And you get those those elements of of overcompensation, uh, you know, where he's constantly talking about Eddie's mother and and, you know, trying to you know, have sex with one, wait, is, is this something only virgins can see? Is that why I haven't right. seen it yet? Like, there's these elements of kind of overcompensation that, again, come with using humor as a defense mechanism. And so, yeah, mm-hmm. he's he's weaponizing his fear, and it ultimately proves unsuccessful for him.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and I love Finn Wolfhard's performance in this role, too. Mm-hmm. I, he's not always my favorite, I think, as he's, he's in a little bit of an awkward phase right now. But I love him in this role. I think he's perfect. He's very good, Richie. yeah
0: watching like a 30 year old looking Finn Wolfhard round out Stranger Things like yeah just make him the dad and a dad in it and recast
1: the character
0: like I'm looking at him right now and I'm like is that Mike Rothman I'm like just
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: like looks old um yeah not that Mike Rothman looks old he's just much older than.
2: well he's a grown up Wolfhard. you know yeah. he's an adult
0: yeah, yeah. so um anyway. <laughs> Yeah, like it's an interesting there's you no know, and he is in the book the other character that actually has a healthy relationship yeah. with his mom and dad. Like the scene with when he's trying to like get money from his dad to go to mm-hmm. like go to a movie. It's a really awesome dad moment. Um mm-hmm. I've definitely pulled that. Well, you know, you shouldn't have spent all your money on you know, putting trying to like get the you know. Yeah. Anyway, um
2: but he also has this really sweet scene with Beverly, too, mm-hmm. and it we don't see as much like they don't seem to really get along too much in the movie, but in the no. book, like they're really good friends, and he's not being like weird or mm-hmm. like overly sexual with her like he's really sweet, and he asks her yeah. to go to the movies and like shows her a yo-yo thing it's It's just really sweet yeah. and then they pop up in eleven twenty two sixty three and just make me sob so. I
0: don't think you get enough of the bonding of the group as a whole. Like as we're talking about all of the characters and their individual fears in this, like I think that the movie does a good job of showing them as being friends, but I don't think it does a great job of them being friends. And I think that's a large part of why they kind of had them return for the second movie. I I think you actually get more of that in part two. Mm -hmm. Um, Because... Let's face it, like the least interesting parts of it are the adult chapters, right?
2: Yeah. By and
0: large, like it's really about the kids. Like that's why, and I think that's why the book is structured the way it is in that the the two timelines are parallel with one another. Because I think Mm -hmm. like you could have cut the book at page 500 if you just told it in a linear way and you would have a great story. Um I kind of like I look at Stand by Me and I look at like that group of like Gordy and Chris and Teddy and Vern, and you're like that feels like a much and you spend a lot more time with all of them together. And I yeah. think as we talk about this movie, I wish we got more of the losers just being the losers. Hmm.
2: Yeah, and I I mean. I feel like part of that is because it is so well done in the book, you know, Mm -hmm. and so we're comparing it. Like, I don't know if I necessarily fault the movie for that because it would just be, I don't know how many hours long it would be, you know. But I could also see this being a 10 episode series that I would watch in a
1: Prefer, yeah.
2: You know, yeah, maybe prefer. All that said, I have seen things go on longer than they maybe Mm -hmm. should have and sometimes shorter
0: is better, but... Are you going to say like this episode? <laughs>
2: yeah. Well, I do. I feel like we are maybe rounding the bat I, I want to mention, and maybe we can save this discussion for next time, but I want to talk about Henry Bowers. Okay. And I think maybe we can save most of that for let
0: Let's do it here and two. then save Pennywise for the next episode.
2: Oh, that's a good idea. Okay. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I think when I didn't Im- intend to talk about Henry Bowers, but I mean, he. we see that he has a horribly abusive father also. Um, We get a little bit more of it in the book, but I think we get enough in the movie to understand. And so I think this is another manifestation of just living day in and day out with this fear is that you become the monster. It's like what we said about Richie, like he's becoming what he fears, but Mm -hmm. you know, Henry is becoming the bully, like what he's afraid of is weakness, Mm. you know?
0: Yeah. Henry is batshit crazy. Oh, when yeah. That's really, and that it's not a professional diagnosis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this He's is psychotic, yeah. Speaking as like a fan of the book and the movie and removing the clinical abortion, like there is something that is wrong with Henry, and I think you see, you see one of the nice things about the book is like, it kind of like, he very slowly like dovetails into madness. Like he goes from being kind of like your cookie cutter, greaser bully that you would, see in these movies or these books but then something turns and you see like it goes a little further and a little further and a little further mm. and the, you're introduced to him in this movie with him trying to like carve his name into ben's stomach right. Like he's yep. about to gut him like from the very first time you're introduced to him he is like so dangerous and i think like what's great about that character is like although we're dealing with like fantastical monsters here bowers is your reminder that like there there are things that you need to be aware of and afraid of that exist in the real world right
1: mm-hmm. and I yeah, think yeah.
3: king does a really good job of that even again my my frame of reference is the movies but stand by me slash the body seems again yep. to have very much that kind of a, a, a same, a similar thing with, with mm-hmm. the bullies there.
2: And Ace yeah, Merrill. So,
3: the way that yeah. they, the way that those bullies interact with that group of friends, I I find them an interesting parallel, which I, I commented on while watching this movie um, earlier. Like it, it, it seems like King has a, this visceral understanding of how horrific a bully can seem when you're a child.
2: Yeah. And that's a theme he writes about a lot. Right. Like he comes back to bullies over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Randall Colburn on um, Losers Club, we jokingly have the Bauer Hour, where he can just talk about the bullies forever. Like he loves them, and I think because they represent another like monstrous archetype for King, it right. makes me wonder who he went to school with mm-hmm, when mm-hmm. he was little and what his like high, high school and middle school years were like. But yeah,
0: yeah, I I think it's pretty. It's pretty understand. I, I think, like, as King, a lot of his best work seems like it's pulled from his own life. Yeah, I don't think it's accidental that a lot of King's, auth a lot of King's protagonists are authors. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. And or I teachers. think this is a, yeah. an observation the Losers Club made maybe recently. A lot of the authors in King's work kind of mirror where he is at that point in his writing career, mm-hmm. like. Ben Mears in Salem's Lot is an up and coming writer, but he does not have like the smash success that Bill Den Bill Denbro has by the mid eighties, where like everything King had written had touched a to gold. Right. Um I think is it Thad in the Dark Thad Half? Beaumont, yeah. He mm-hmm. is like putting that alter ego to bed of George Stark as King is trying to bury um Bachman. Bachman. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so like a lot of Kings, as King is writing, he's really in a lot of ways exercising maybe a lot of his own demons. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why like bullies are such a prevalent theme in so much of his work.
2: Yeah. And Greaser bullies. Like there is a specific Stephen mm-hmm. King bully archetype, which I just eat with a spoon every time. I love them. No. Because they're terrifying, you know? Oh, yeah. Um. Well, okay. Is there anything else we want to say? That we have not already mentioned before we move on. We're going to come back and talk about chapter two. But... Which of the,
0: which of, and I think you guys both mentioned it was for you, Chewie. It was Ben mm-hmm. and Jen. Which of the losers do you feel like you most identify? Oh, with? it's got to be Bev. Okay.
2: hundred percent. I mean, I love them all, but yeah, Bev.
0: Yeah. I would say for me, there's a lot of, depending on the day, a lot of Ben and a lot of Richie mm-hmm. in me. Like I tend to be the smart smartass. Um, you, I tend to be, <laughs> really yeah. I and I use like a lot of the humor. I you know part of it is like I'm an overweight person, and a lot of a lot of my humor like definitely self deflects trying to be like i acknowledge it and i think mm-hmm. it's something a lot of overweight people do is yep. like mm-hmm. we are like upfront. yep i'm fat and we have a lot of humor that goes around that like i am going to put this on the table so that you won't do it and that you won't make comments about it 100 humor is a tool of deflection in that way mm-hmm. not just about things like my weight but like other areas where i feel like i have deficiencies as well
1: Mm-hmm.
2: yeah yeah. And we talked about that a little bit in our bodily uh, body autonomy. Nope. Body dysmorphia series. Also, when we talked about Stephen King's thinner um, and black swan too. So for more of that conversation, check out those episodes. Also, I I, I was really happy with how that series turned out because um, that's something I think a lot of us can relate to, you know?
0: Other than that, maybe like book Patrick Hawk setters who identify with the Oh, yeah. Most, oh. I kid, I kid, I love,
2: yeah. <laughs> Hey, man, Owen Teague, I love him in this mm-hmm. movie, though. he's, I mean, I love him in everything, but um, he's great as Patrick Hawksetter.
0: Adam Driver stunt double? Right.
2: I mean, yeah. Adam, the little brother, yep.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, I can see it. Both
2: both of them are dreaming.
0: All right. So we will like listeners like we have not even touched on the big bad and we will nope. do that in part two. We, we you can go back and listen to our episode on it where we talk about it in a comfort horror movie and we talk a lot about Pennywise and we will get into him in the second uh, the second chapter of our series on uh, childhood fears. And we come back in two weeks with that episode. So if you're like screaming at us right now that we're not talking about Pennywise.
2: We will. Because it's a big story. There's a lot, which is why we've already been talking for over two hours. And so on that note, I'm going to propose that we save our mention of any other mental health topics we see in the film and any other movies we see this in for our next episode. Because I think it's going to tie into our discussion there. Um
0: or actually, I was just going to ask Stephen if you want to enter yours. Like, what other movies? Because you won- may not be with us for the next one. So,
2: although if you can join us, we'd love for you to. Yeah,
0: I not if, that we're saying you're going to die in two weeks. I <laughs> mean, I don't know. Um,
2: spoilers, Mike.
3: Jeez, <laughs> do you? What have you seen? The Deadlights? Are you clairvoyant now? Goodness. Um, no, the. Um, I mean, obvi- the obvious answer is, and, I, and I've kind of mentioned it already, is, is the, the Stand by Me connection. Um, Mm -hmm. which again is it's, it's, it's a lot of the, the Stephen King, the kids, the, you know, going to witnessing, you know, the horrors of, of death and, and kind of confronting it in weird ways, their own mortality, um, Mm -hmm. or, or the other things that might terrify them as children. Um, I mean, that, that's kind of one of the more obvious ones, but then again, I mean, I find elements of the losers in like every kid movie from the eighties. Like we've mentioned Goonies and monster squad already. Uh, Joe Dante's explorers, which is kind of one of my secret favorite eighties kid movies, like, you know, kind of all of those movies that, that you, I mean, the losers, there are elements of the losers in all of those, which I think is, is really cool and really fun. So, you know, just a bunch of kids hanging out. We talked about the Goonies on disenfranchised earlier, or I guess last month at this point, but um, you know, and how, we're like, well, what does a horror version of The Goonies look like? And I would say it looks like it or it looks like Monster Squad. Honestly, it's it's kind of very similar similar trajectories in, in that way of just, you know, kids coming of age and discovering more about themselves by going on this very specific genre adventure.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well put.
2: Yeah. And I love a lot of those movies, although it took me a while to, they grew on me. You know, they had to grow on me. Um, well, and speaking of those kinds of movies and adventures, and now it's time for an uplifting moment. This is where we share any grounding or self-care that's been particularly effective for us. Grounding and coping skills are the little tips, tricks, mantras, and practices that help us get through the tough days or tough moments. And self-care is anything we do that makes us feel good or makes us feel better. Um, mine, I just finished... Fairy Tale, which was Stephen King's newest book. And you can hear all of my thoughts on that on our Losers Club episode. But I can read whatever I want to right now. And I think I'm going to embrace Halloween and fall and dive into, speaking of Stephen King, I'm going to go back to Night Shift and Skeleton Crew. I'm going to go to his older short stories, which I fucking love. They're just so creepy. They're perfect for the ha- like Halloween season. And I might read a little Clive Barker also. Perfect. So, audiobooks are mine right now.
3: Stephen, what about yourself? Um, I just I just wrapped production on a community theater play. Um,
2: oh wow. That I
3: was involved in. Um, I I got to. It's my first time on stage in four and a half years, which was oh, wow. really rewarding and really fun. And I got to work with a couple of people that I'd worked with before and a, a lot of people that I hadn't. And it was it was great. Like it was just. It's something that I've always enjoyed doing, and something I wasn't sure if I could still do after four and a half years. And it turns out, yes, I can, um, yeah. which was very rewarding and fun. And I've also begun reading again, which i kind of put aside for a while. So I've I've finished several books already this year, and I'm I'm getting ready to start another one. Um, so yeah, which is always something that I I have enjoyed in, in in years past, and just have kind of put to the side. So um, yeah, those couple couple things Excellent.
0: for me. That's awesome. Excellent. Um for me like we are getting you know obviously this is dropping the first week of October and for me it is like the best month of the year for a lot of reasons obviously like I'm a Halloween kid um so we're kind of like th- this week is the week like well as we recorded it's the week like the decorations will come up from the basement and moss and like we might build a couple of new things to put in the front yard, but we'll have our house kind of lit up and done nice. And what I've noticed in my neighborhood, like people, some people already have their stuff out and it looks like there are a few more people that actually are like decorating for the season, which is really nice. Um, the town I live in is this, really beautiful town in the fall and like there is one it's about a 10 second stretch of drive when I come home where like the are the trees overhang over the road and it forms like a very natural tunnel and this time of year is like the leaves change it's like really beautiful and it makes me really love living here Um, so like I'm just kind of gearing up for like my favorite time of year and i know that like this weekend coming up like my daughter and i like we'll be going to like our first haunted hayride of the season like we're gonna go to this big outdoor haunt where there's like a 40 minute hayride and then four other haunted attractions that you can get into Mm -hmm. and i'm hoping that she'll go through her first like indoor haunted house um, she'll do hay rides because she's like, nope, they won't touch me mm-hmm. or they won't get super close to me. But in an indoor haunt, like they're very, very close. So mm-hmm. she feels like she's ready to do it this year. Oh,
1: fingers crossed. She's we'll a braver see.
2: person than I. <laughs> nope, nope. Won't
0: do them? Ha- haunted hay rides? No. Uh,
2: haunted hay rides? I will. Yeah. But, nope, I won't.
0: See, the the hay is the
3: scariest part of a haunted hay ride for me because I have allergies. <laughs>
0: Uh, there's yeah. a lack of hay on the hay rides like they're empty <laughs> yeah there's usually it's you're if you're expecting hay usually they're just empty like carriages that pull they're you around. Like,
2: hey where's all the hay mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> i have pictures of, that we talked awful. about we have i have pictures of ada when she was like two or three years old There was like an outdoor shopping place near us. And behind it was this kind of like walking track, like a really nice little walking track around a pond. And they did like a free haunted house where they put you on like the back of a golf cart. And at like three years old, like there's pictures of her making funny faces next to scary dudes in clown outfits. Mm -hmm. Not afraid at all. And then it's funny as you get older, all of a sudden, then you become more afraid. Mm.
2: Yeah, which, you know, maybe fodder for our next episode maybe um well we want to hear from you do you also love it do you love stephen king do you love stephen weber who is your favorite loser what's your current self-care or anything else that's on your mind you can answer all these questions and more by following us at psychoapod on all the socials you can also email us at psychoapod at gmail.com and our homework question for the week we did not discuss this previously but i think maybe what is your favorite stephen king book or movie
0: yeah it's very what's your childhood fear
2: ah yeah that's probably a good one what's your childhood fear maybe yeah. we'll save our what's your favorite stephen king thing for next time yeah um i mean you can always tell me that and i'll just you
3: speaking know. of uh jen i oh, yeah. i was interested in uh, hearing your recommendation for me for the first stephen oh, king book that because we did set that up earlier in the episode
2: We did set that up earlier in the episode. Um, Unless you
3: want to have me back next time and we can. I mean, I would love to
2: have you back. Let's do that. How about I have one question for you. Okay. And then I'm going to think on it and have you back for the next time. If That sounds okay. Sounds fine to me. Okay. What is your tolerance for scariness? Do you have a high tolerance for horror or a low tolerance
1: for horror?
3: Uh, It depends on the type of horror. I think like I can't do the gore stuff very well. Um, okay. And just I find like one of the scariest movie trailers that I've seen all year and, and it kind of is like made me go mm, to the movie uh, mm-hmm. is is the trailer for Smile. Like I find that very oh. unnerving, very off putting like that. And there are elements of this movie that are kind of the same where you get like Pennywise doing the, you know, the creepy smile that apparently all the Scars guards can do. Like those yeah. those mm-hmm. things I like, just I find very kind of Point unnerving and off putting and. Off-putting, and so mm-hmm. I, I, I those those kinds of things are the things I don't like, but like monsters and like kind of ooky spooky stuff, no, nah, that's I'm I'm okay with that.
2: Nice. All right. Well I'm gonna go ahead and recommend. I think I want to recommend Salem's lot. Okay. I think that's, a, that's my
0: recommendation as well. It, okay. That's
2: a great entry. Uh, unless you want to start with the short stories, and in c- that case, Night Shift. But yeah, Salem's a Lot, I think. And it's a good digestible size, also. You know, it's not a mammoth one. But yeah. Okay. yeah. What's the recommendation you've been given? Uh,
3: The recommendation that I've been given is 112263.
2: Oh, I love that. That's, that's a good one, too.
0: It's a great book. It's interesting because it's probably not
1: say It's indicative more indicative
0: of like Kings. Yeah, it's like not horror. Uh, and I think, to be quite fair, like, King kind of, like, shifted away from horror in a pretty big way in, like, the 90s or 2000s. You don't want to be pigeonholed uh, it, as the guy who just does the one yeah. thing. Um,
2: but that's a sa- great one. That's one of my all-time Yeah, all it's one of his best books. Okay. Yeah.
0: Salem's Lot is great. It's his first attempt at world building with the town of... And it's basically... It's Dracula. It mirror. It, yeah. it really mirrors a lot of the events of Dracula. Bram Stoker's Dracula. Well, I, uh, I love world this building. time of year too. Yeah. Okay. You know? I, I do love some good world building. So.
1: Oh
2: yeah. well, you'll love it then. Okay. Yeah. Um, but Eleven Twenty Two has great world building. Also, it's just not so horrific. Um. All right. Well, so let's see. Next up, we have a comfort horror episode, which I am super excited about because it's a movie I haven't seen in years. I believe it just turned 21. Um, Or maybe it's 18. I can't remember. Um, But we're going to be joined by our Losers Club editor, Kyle Orozovich. I hope I said that right. And if not, Kyle can edit in me saying it the right way. Um, He is the editor of the Losers Club, and he is going to be talking about Shaun of the Dead, which I am... Very excited about. It. I may have only seen it one once all the way through. Oh, so I,
0: I really excited it to revisit couple it. Couple times a year, it's so good. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've done an audio commentary on it with Ada for a bonus episode, like our first year of Pod in the Pendulum. Oh
2: well, I'm really excited yeah. to to revisit. Um, and now let's wrap up with some plugs. Let's see. Stephen, where can we find you online and what's coming up for the disenfranchised pod? Uh,
3: well, we uh, – I am uh, – my name is Stephen Foxworthy. Uh, you can find me online uh, Twitter, Instagram, letterboxed at Chewy Walrus, which is why Mike called me Chewy earlier. That's, ah. that's my web handle. Um, he, he, he does call me – there are many people who just know me as Chewy and that is okay. <laughs> but my name is actually Stephen. That's the name my parents gave me. Um, and it's how I usually – Respond on the street if you yell my name, um, the disenfranchised podcast, we're a podcast um, about movies that, you know, were intended to be franchises and then didn't become franchises. Hmm. Uh, and it's October, so we're getting ready to start our annual spookython, which we've been doing every year since our very first year. Uh, and we've got some some really fun ones. I don't want to say anything yet because we've got guests lined up, and I want to make sure we can nail down those recording times. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, we've got some really fun stuff planned, and hopefully, we can execute it beautifully. And uh, yeah, it, uh, last month we did um, female and non-binary um, queer voices in horror uh, oh. as kind of a, a running theme uh, for last month, and then the year before that, it w- we're just two guys starting a podcast, so it's all mm-hmm. like horror movies that we liked. So it was like. The Mm -hmm. Evil Dead remake and Beetlejuice and, you know, stuff like that. So we've got a a very deep back catalog. Um, Mike Snoonian has been on several times uh, Mm -hmm. to talk about My Bloody Valentine and its remake and Friday the 13th. We've got to have him on again sooner than later. I know we're going to have you on in February because it's kind of a tradition to have you on for Valentine's Day now. Yeah. After the last two years doing the My Bloody Valentine's. so. Um, but yeah, uh, you can find, uh, disenfranchised online at disenfranch pod, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Letterboxed. uh, my host Brett Wright, and I appreciate, uh, you checking us out if you get a chance and are interested at all.
2: Awesome. And Mike, what about you?
0: Yeah. So listeners know at this point, uh, my other show is the pod and the pendulum. Steven's been a frequent contributor to that in the past year as we've kind of like expanded our, uh, kind of uh panelists that come on and uh he's been like a great contributor to it so he's been on a number of episodes and it's always enjoyable to talk to him so in the pod in the pendulum like we basically tackle horror movie franchises one by one we are currently putting the final touches finally on the texas chainsaw massacre series uh, we've done eight of the 10 movies. We just have 2017, uh, 17, I think it's 2017's leather vase right. yeah. and the 2022 Texas chainsaw massacre to go. I anticipate that one in particular being a really fun episode. Um, after that, we're going to return to Haddonfield and talk about the the last two movies in David Gordon green's kind of reboot slash requel. um, the latest episode that's up right now. It is on Texas Chainsaw 3d. It's a really fun episode. I think at one point I just crack up for 30 seconds, just <laughs> thinking about like the original idea for that movie where Leatherface would have like a pet dog no. um, that he befriends. Yeah. No. It's really bizarre. Um, did you do your thing? Cause Oh, of course we did our thing. Cause of course, <laughs> um, So yeah, the pod and the pendulum everywhere you get your podcast. And remember, for listeners of our show, go to patreon.com slash psychoanalysis podcast. Become a patron today. There's about, depending on your tier, about 40 hours of bonus material that is up right now. We are putting a pause on charging our patrons through the end of the year because we're just like trying to like plow through this batch of episodes and... Um, worry less about the Patreon and then we're going to relaunch it again at the start of the year but if you become a patron today you will have access to all of that stuff um, and you'll be able to try it out for a few months which we encourage you to do at patreon.com Podcast.
2: And you can find me at Atu on Twitter and Instagram. And you can find me co-hosting the Losers Club podcast, which is about Stephen King. So if you liked this episode, check that out because it's all about Stephen King. And also the White Ladies in Crisis podcast where we talk about either um, some show about a woman losing her marbles or an erotic thriller. We kind of bounce back and forth between those. Um, And you can find me just kind of writing and doing stuff. Being weird, um, and that's our episode on it. Thank you so much, Stephen, for joining us. Thank you for having uh, this me. Was, oh yeah, we would love for you to come back for our it chapter two. I, I would, feel like they're like
3: I would book absolutely books. love it. I'm going to be watching it chapter two because again, it's my friend, one of my friend's favorite movies. So I might as well talk about it.
2: Exactly. Yeah. And then we can talk about the man himself, Pennywise. Yeah. Uh, the clown himself, I guess I should say. Um.
3: Not the band Pennywise. The cosmic yeah. entity himself.
2: Yes. Exactly. Uh, listeners, thank you for spending time with us. Please make sure to take care of yourselves and take care of each other. And with that, let's sign off. We came here to chew bubblegum and take care of ourselves. And, and we're, we're all, all out, out of bubblegum. Bubble gum.